thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up, what's up? Voice strong enough to cope with a, uh, an outbreak. Do that again, because that, that actually did sound peculiar. Go on. No, I'm just in the... If I, if I do it again... I will sabotage the rest of the programme. Have I given you... I know some people have missed it. ...the flu? Well, is it, yes. is it because I'm getting blamed for it? Everyone's saying that what you now have is my flu. Yes. It wasn't possible to spend... <laughs> I spent... I got away with the first programme, with you being infected. Uh, and then... It's this, like outbreak, isn't it? It was contagion. Contagion. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it was. Uh, but I didn't get away with the second one. And so then I came... Then I affected everybody, and including controllers and members of my family and not in that order but you know it was it's but it, can i just say everyone's got it everyone people who've never met me people in you know wilmslow it only, it only takes one <laughs> it's, 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 as far afield as wilmslow <laughs> my goodness me anyway are you feeling better or are you actually feeling rubbish no, i'm getting there I'm, i feel good now oh that's really yeah good. i've that's really, really well, well done thanks uh, Alexander Peterson is back from the Church of Wittertainment in Norway. Dear Originals, greetings from the Norwegian branch of the church. I'm happy to report that since my email was read out, we've grown in numbers. Excellent. We're now a total of 27 members, most of whom are British people living in Norway, Norway who were desperate, uh, desperately need of a local church. Among the native Norwegians is a member who works at the Norwegian Ebola Centre in Sierra Leone, where we appear to be very, very big, big news indeed. When or if we hit 30 members, we plan on celebrating by tracking down a film referenced in the show, setting a time and date and then watching the said film online together. And we'll then discuss the film and share our opinions in the comments section. Films suggested so far have been Jeremy and some old video nasty. Imagine <laughs> if we ended up watching Jeremy. We'll be ahead of Simon. Anyway, we are ahead of court. We are uh, open to suggestions. We thought you'd like to know how we're getting on PS. Finland is not part of Scandinavia. Ah, there we go. Uh, and so, th- thank you for clearing that up because so, that was, I, who, who knew? Well, clearly people uh, you in know, Finland. In Finland, uh, and lo- and loads of. Although Norwegian... you said that that's, that's from Norway, Norvège. Anyway, nul point. Anyway, so thank you to all what these was people. The, what from... was the Norwegian entry that that scored nil point of the Eurovision Song Contest? You want to put it on our list? We could do. Can you remember what it was? No. Shall I Google it? No, because a, a man looking up things on a computer, I think we've established, could you, is in, not in, great. Excuse me, in the, in the technical section of the programme, Robin, could you Google... Who's Robin? Everyone knows oh, who Robin, Robin is. Yes. Could you Google what was the Norwegian entry that got nil point? And there may be more than one. Well, then we're going to put it in the end of the show. We're going to put it in the end of the show. These are the members of the Norwegian church. Kasper Bullstromnes, Madeline from Norway, but is happening happening in Michigan at the moment. Mark in Christiansand, Martin Oyn. Now, it's it's one Christian, Pelleser, Nina and Helen, but I don't know if you say one, whether it be Joanne. I'm not sure what the Norwegian the Manx, pronu- the Manx pronunciation would be due. I'm not interested in that. Really? Um, because there is, a com- there is a connection between the Isle of Man and Norway. Now, his KNUT. Oh, I won't tell you about it then. That's absolutely fine. On you go. Thanks. Uh, KNUT is that Knut, Knut, Nut, Knut, Canoe. Well, he was the the, the person who sound mixed uh, the Exorcist was Buzz Knudsen. Although apparently, isn't there something about not? Didn't somebody send an email about you don't pronounce the D? So it'd be Buzz Knudsen, but we all called him Buzz Knudsen. How does that help? Well, because do I say Nut or New or what? Then for this canoe, I'm a canoe. 
A canother canoe. Canu. Is it? <laughs> he's a, he's a canother canut. Anyway, let's say it's canoe. Mm -hmm. Andreas Strom Gunderson and his son Marcus. See, Marcus, easy. Emma in Oslo, easy. And uh, Rydar R. Melsom in Holden. Thank you very much for getting in touch and to all our new Norwegian listeners. For whom we will be playing a special <clears throat> treat at the end of the podcast. The song for which they're, they're most famous. Maybe we should play some Aha as well, just to take the taste away. Are they Norwegian? Yes. Are they? Yes. OK, no, why are you still looking at Robin? Because Ro Robin... Suddenly, yeah, you did suddenly. That was just great. You sure. said yes, like everyone knows. And then you looked behind the window in that kind of... Am I right? Because you knew... He's a Eurovision man, so he'd have told me. Everything wrong, you know is wrong. What was the, the lead singer of, of Aha called? He was... Don't say it in his ear. Don't, don't, don't. and Hardy, that, I think. It's, I know these things. OK, I have to ask you a question when you haven't got headphones on. Even I knew that. Hilary Mason is on now. <clears throat> BSC, CA, non-pipe smoker. Hang on. Yes. CA is... I don't know what CA is, actually. BSC is Bachelor of Science. Yes. CA... We've all got one of those. CA, <laughs> don't we? Anyway, I'm a long-term listener to church, and I can date my attendance at the uh, church all the way back to January 2015. Wow couple of months then. <laughs> I can honestly say I've never missed an episode in that time. However, to redeem which is, myself... Which is more than we can yes, say. that's true. But only because we're taken off we were... for holidays by our family. Anyway, <clears throat> for my tardiness in joining the conversation... What's interesting is that we're taken off for holidays by each other's families. I have been working my way through the podcast back catalogue. This week I greatly enjoyed the Jude Law episode and was waiting in anticipation for the Pinky and Perky voice finale. Which, which was the Jude Law? Oh, that was the, 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 the Scottish Aberdeen submarine. submarine. Ab Ab Aberdeen submarine. Which Black Sea? And not the Black Sea. Yeah, that's right. Susan Sarandon rhymes with abandon. Which has been referenced... This is so disjointed now, this email. I particularly enjoyed the Jude Law episode. Waiting for the Pinky and Perky voice finale, which had been referenced in many of these subsequent podcasts to date. Unfortunately, time was cut short. As I just arrived at work, which is, I have to tell you, the head office of a large FTSE 100 corporation. I hope you're impressed. Yeah. As this section was starting, as I stepped into the lift, I unplugged my headphones, an action which usually pauses the podcast. However, to my horror, despite unplugging the headphones, the podcast continued <laughs> to play out loud using the speakers on my phone. <laughs> Carrying several bags... And in a complete fluster, I couldn't seem to turn it off. <laughs> I looked up to find one other person in the lift looking at me in shock as... So that bit was blaring out of the phone in the lift. I had absolutely no explanation for the sound coming out of my phone. <laughs> the man's expression, though, turned from shock to joy because he said, is that Simon and Mark doing the pinky and perky thing? Yes. I would, therefore, like to give a big wass-up to the unknown lift rider and fellow Wittetainee who saved me from a very embarrassing lift incident. Also to my mum, Viv, devoted listener, who helped me see the light and worship at your church. Thank you, Hilary. That's uh, fantastic. I think that, what are the chances no, of no. <laughs> being in a lift with one other person? That wouldn't happen in the one extra lift which I came up with today. That was a, it was quite trying. I was on the train this morning. It was very, very early, and, um, and I, was I was writing something. I had to get something filed by, by the time the train arrived, which would have been 9 o'clock, so this was like 6.30 coming out of, you know, wherever it was. 
And suddenly this voice went, cheer up, Buttwad. And I looked up and then this bloke went, oh, you know, big fan of the show. So oh, thank you very much. Never had so much that cheer up, Buttwad before. Um, <clears throat> while you were giving us that hilarious anecdote, I can tell you that Norway have actually scored nil point on four separate occasions. Four? Four? Can we have a medley? Can we have a medley? Fine, later. So yeah, we'll have a that's medley. a lot of work for... for... We'll have a medley with four songs, but nul point. It's 1963. Norvege. 1978. 1981 and 1997. They got no points on all those occasions. OK. But we've done pretty badly recently, haven't we? Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and there's some fixed thing whereby we don't even have to qualify because we're, we're us. I so think... we have to be allowed in on principle. Yes, because we thought of it. <laughs> it was all right. It wasn't, though, was it? I thought Eurovision was actually a French idea. I don't know. I have no idea. And care less, Okay, actually. Um, fine. So I don't know how many Norwegian nil point songs we're going to do, but we'll, we'll We're going to have a some. medley of all four. Uh, just one more, then, before the show starts. By the way, really looking forward to the show today. Yes. Having missed it last week. Yes. Did you listen last week? Of course I didn't listen. Why would I listen? I did. They were really good. That's why I don't listen. Oh, OK. Uh, James Morell, BA Ons, Poll slash Phil. Uh, there haven't been any tales of WRI's wittertainment-related injuries for a while, so I thought I would share one. Last week, the wife and I were in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia <laughs> to visit my wife's family for Chinese New Year. We're staying in a hotel right by the Petronas Towers, which is a very impressive structure. In order to try and get some exercise and unwind from the days of loud Malaysians... Sorry, an unwind from days of loud Malaysian in-laws. Very important add, add on. Uh, I went for a run around the park by the towers. Now, it's very hot and humid in uh, KL, as we call it. Yeah. So to try and push through the pain, I put your podcast on and set off. By the fifth lap of the park, I was really struggling, so hunkered down to get it done. At this point, Mark was reviewing Sean the Sheep, and I was rather engrossed and possibly not concentrating as much as I should have done. Therefore, I was rather surprised when a selfie stick came out of nowhere directly into my path. I took immediate evasive oh, sorry, action. A what? A selfie stick. You not see one of these? There's loads outside the building right now as annoying uh, schoolchildren take selfies on selfie sticks. It's like a stick that you can put your phone on so you can picture of yourself from you know, a distance of about a metre. You never seen them? No. Um, are you making this up? Or no. This is you didn't know. It's a selfie stick. Uh, sorry, but what? I, but, and the yes. point? And the point is what? So you can take a photograph of yourself with greater ease. Well, you can just hold your phone and take a picture of yourself. Yeah, but <clears throat> it also has the added mm. attraction if you're a burglar that someone is holding something probably of a value of about three or four hundred pounds. <laughs> about a yard away. About a yard away, and you can steal it, and they won't be able to do anything. So, you know, from a burglar point of view, it's a really it's, good. It's thing. not a selfie stick. It's a, it's a gift on a stick. It's a help help your selfie stick. That's what it <laughs> help is. Anyway, did you just make that up? I did. That's <laughs> very good. Taken ten years. Well done. I took a immediate... help your selfie stick. I'm sorry. That's that's great. James says. I took immediate evasive action, but unfortunately only managed to go bottom over bosom, as we say, over a shopping trolley that someone had left parked <laughs> in the path. At this point, Mark was discussing the wonders of stop-motion animation. It's fair to say that my motion was comprehensively stopped. <laughs> only Ardman rarely have to put up with giggling Malaysians staring at them while they do it. Anyway, I survived. I'm now back in Blighty with a newfound hatred for selfie sticks, something which Mark had never heard of. Anyway, gong hei fat choi for the year of the goat to you both. Thank you very much indeed. Is it, does that? <clears throat> that's Norwegian. That's, for, Norwegian. That, that's the new Norwegian song. 
for next year. <laughs> are you looking forward to the show today? I'm, I am, yeah, because now that I know how excited you are about it. I've got an email that I need to read you, but I'll, re- uh, but I'll fare. Well, that's an, a little bit annoying, do you think? No. Do you mean off air and not in the podcast? Yeah. What sort of an email? It's just a, an, an email that was sent to me from... Is it a management? No, it's the one I told you about earlier on, when it, as a result of the gaslight thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you want to do it now? Well, but we, but it's, it's on the podcast. I mean, it's your call. No, no, no. Okay. Let's, let, we'll hold, we'll do this now in the gap. Yes. This is going to go seamlessly from mm. podcast extra to the show. Yeah. But by the time the show starts, listeners will know that I've had an email read out to me. I'm really thrilled at the okay. thought. <clears throat> so, <laughs> good afternoon, welcome to the programme, uh, which will be two hours of flagship uh, movie-based entertainment. And Mark's first... That's fu- contractual. Mark's first at full health uh, for many years. So, well, not for many years, uh, it's, it's, yeah, so a few weeks. I'm sorry that you're not people quite... Are, people are concerned, you know, that's all. Yes, and... no, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm f- back at fighting strength. You, however, are still... Well, I'm at 90... 90 well, you know, we're getting there, 95% or something. And, 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 and you soldiered all the way through it on uh, Radio 2. And I, have, uh, and I have a kind of a herbal tea with medicinal qualities. Ready to ease me through the awkward moments. Is, what, is, is it actually uh, a medicinal herbal tea, or is it just a... Well, what is it? it's got licorice and stuff like that in it. Which, oh, well, that must be medicinal. Which makes it... No, what I mean is it sort of coats the throat and makes it feel smoother. OK. And more late night. And more. Uh, so, and you can follow the live stream. That's very entertaining. You can text us, of course. Uh, you can uh, tweet us. You can uh, follow the live stream. That's very entertaining. Yeah, there's Facebook, there's email, and the Snapchat. On that subject... This is an anonymous email. I almost read out the name again. Sorry, Jim. Pardon? Yeah. Sorry? Did you just do it just then? It seems that Wittertainment's attempts to infiltrate the corridors of power continue. As a mid-ranking public servant in the New Zealand colonially common public service, I often have to attend meetings with cabinet ministers. It's like we're a spy, so we're we're infiltrating governments now. But we're not about spying. We're about two old men bickering. (laughs) This week... I was chatting with a ministerial advisor in New Zealand when they said that they had heard my name mentioned on a podcast. I had discovered a fellow Wittetani at the heart of the New Zealand government. Hopefully this will enable us to stealthily further the cause, perhaps through a public information campaign on how to do Snapchat. You just do Snapchat. Or getting the forthcoming referendum on a new flag to include a hello to Jason Isaacs option. Either Because that's what they're doing. So that's very interesting. So we're at the, right at the heart of we New are. Zealand politics. Do you think that we should probably start to stand in elections? Well, I think it's a good idea. Around the world. I mean, yes. not just in the so UK. Interest politics, right? So we sort of get in looking... old trot. Uh, either way, says this anonymous email. Well, if I'm an old trot, what are you? That's two more births taken on the Wellington leg of the cruise. Thank you, Jamie Grenn. Thank you. Just what are you? If I'm the old trot, what are you? Well, I'm the impartial uh, Oh, you're the impartial anchor. That's fine. Okay, Thank you very much. To be absolutely clear about that. I'm, I, I'm thrilled about this New Zealand stuff. But I think if we stood in, in any forthcoming elections around <laughs> the world, our platform is just the code of conduct. That's all we're interested in. <laughs> Possibly to be enforced militarily. That's it. We have no other policies. It instincts, do you know good what? behaviour we, in cinemas. We probably win. We, we the, win. You know, the it, depressing thing is, that's probably true. If you still if you still want the code of conduct, because if you're kind of new to the church, uh, it is on the Five Life website. But you know, we'd pick up that protest vote that isn't 
catered for by all the other protests. Do you know there was a brilliant thing in um, back in the 1980s when the Revolutionary Communist Party, whose um, uh, slogan for their for their conference was "Preparing for Power," because like it was about to happen, um, they had this absolutely fantastic theory that that what they would do was rather than standing a candidate in elections, because they kind of didn't believe in elections, what they would do they're is... They're awkward and sort of inconvenient. Yeah, and also, you know, probably reactionary and all the rest of it. So what they would do is that they would just claim that anybody who didn't vote was a protest vote for the Revolutionary Communist Party. And since statistically... Large numbers of people don't vote. They came out and they said, "Look, we got twice as much as all the major parties." I don't think that everybody that didn't vote it was a vote for the RCP. No, or is that what they're called? Is that how they're referred to? Well, the they RCP? don't exist anymore. They've oh, okay. they've uh, sure. they've all they've just they've stopped. Jai Sherwell. They took the next step and then stopped. Uh, Jai Sherwell. I'm a washer of dishes and part-time photographer with a homeschooling education, living in Queensland. Whilst listening to your show and by your new standards, it seems I can't claim to be a long-time listener. I'd now and again heard you mention your Snapchat account. As someone who delights in the casual image swapping of the app, I attempted to get you on Snapchat by simply getting you on Snapchat. However, when that failed due to me not knowing your Snapchat account name, I searched the various places I thought I might find it, like your website or your Facebook page. As it turns out, there wasn't even a mention of Snapchat on on either of them. So I come to you now, not with an interesting life situation or story, Aside from that one time the cinema lights came on 15 minutes before the end of War Horse and left me with no darkness but only my hand to hide my tears. To ask a favour of you directly, could you please ask the man behind the glass, presumably your producer slash editor, Mm -hmm. to feed one of you the account name for your Snapchat? Well, Jai Sherwell, let me tell you, we don't need feeding because it's surprisingly wittertainment. And and if you want to follow us on Snapchat, it's wittertainment. What else is it likely to be? Uh, anyway, so that homeschooling education left out an area. I'm just saying, controversial. I'm just saying. Add that. You've got a whole teenager. Add that. Add that to our. I'm just saying. Our manifesto. Okay. What? Our strictly appealing to everybody manifesto. So it's code of conduct, and no, we can't mention education at all. It's just the code. Yeah, of you conduct. were about to put in an education clause. I wasn't. You were. I wasn't. You nearly did. You you actually pursed your lips, ready to say something, and then you didn't. It's just the code of conduct. That's just it. That's the all code of conduct. That's for. yes. We're single issue politics <laughs> around the world. Around the world, we're going to we're going to sweep the board in the next Kiwi referendum about the flag. <laughs> that would be great. Hey, we're box office top ten at yeah. ten. American Sniper. I think we probably said that. Yeah, I mean, except that it w- is worth pointing out that what one of the few decent jokes at the uh, Oscar ceremony was the joke about. Uh, if you look at how much money American Sniper has taken, it said he says something like all the Best Picture nominees have taken. Um, he said all the Best Picture nominees together have taken six hundred million dollars, and three hundred million of that is American Sniper. That means this whole side of the auditorium is American Sniper, and the rest is. So it, it, it is astonishing because, of course, it was pretty much uh, overlooked when it came to the wins. I think it won one. I think every Best Picture nominee won one. But um, but in ter- box office terms in America, it's just a runaway success. Number nine is Jupiter Ascending. Which I liked. Uh, and it, again, as a post-Oscar thing, there was this whole theory that uh, Eddie Redmayne had norbited his chances of winning the award for Best Actor. Remind me what that means now. So uh, Eddie Murphy was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Dreamgirls. And then um, Norbit came out, and then everyone went, "Oh, yeah, no, yeah." And then he didn't win. And there was a, sort of 
insider pundits said actually the people did genuinely not decide not to vote for him on the strength of Norbit rather than on the strength. I mean, whether that's true or not, who knows? Because the academy isn't you. You can't. So because Eddie Redmayne, everyone said he was going to win for theory of everything, which indeed he 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 did. I mean, he was. I think it was quite uh, close with uh, Michael Keaton for Birdman. Um, there was this theory that Jupiter ascending is out there in cinemas. It was getting terrible reviews, wrongly so, incidentally, because I thought it was good fun. I mean, it is all over the place and it is bonkers, and uh, and it does feature Sean Bean as a. Of somebody who's been crossed with a B and uh, Eddie, Eddie Redmayne as crossed Emperor with a, B. with a B. Like Eric the Half a B. Eric the Half a B, exactly. Put it on the playlist. Ha ha ha. He he he. Eric the Half a B. All our playlist, by the way, is on the Five Live website. Should is you wish this to partake. something Demi B. Yeah, we can do that. Anyway, um, the theory of anyway. everything is eight, so you can blend and morph these two together. Oh, fine. So, Jupiter Ascending is is uh, Eddie Redmond doing this mad performance, this completely mad Emperor Ming performance. And then, in Theory of Everything, he's just brilliant, Oscar-winning form. And in fact, despite the fact that Birdman ended up winning Best Picture and winning Best Director, wrongly, um... I think Eddie Redmayne was always... Uh, when we, in fact, when we talked about it for uh, the Radio Times discussion that we did, was, I mean, even back then, it was there. Was, I don't think there was a, there was any possibility he was going to get top. I know everyone said it was very, very close with Michael Keaton. but uh, Michael Keaton obviously thought he was going to win because he had that speech ready. Pardon me? There was a whole sequence of photographs where Michael Keaton had taken a little speech. Oh, no, I better pop no. it. No! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't see... I'm, I better pop it back in again. Really? Yes. I just was, was conscious of what he was doing with his gum. Because you never see... Oh, I'm so surprised. I thought he... Oh, well. Never seen anybody chew gum quite so ostentatiously. <laughs> Number seven is Peppa Pig, The Golden Boots. Now, as you know, we've been uh, off last week, yes. so I'll tell you right now that I haven't seen Peppa Pig, The Golden Boots, Project Almanac, Almanac, I can't say that word, and The Wedding Ringer. Yes, 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 it's Project no, Almanac. Very we'll good. In a moment. Peppa Pig, The Golden Boots. Jason Simpson has seen it. You don't need to worry about it because our listeners have seen it. Good. I took my three-year-old to see Peppa Pig and she was transfixed the whole time. Can't get a better recommendation than that. It was her first cinema trip too, so it was quite a special day. Very good. And that's all you can ask for. You want to take a three-year-old to the movies? You want to have something... And it's less than an hour, right? It's something like 58 minutes long or something. I don't know. I I believe that's correct because I was listening to the show last week, which you weren't. No, as you know. (laughs) I, you know... On the very, very You're sound basis. No, if they're... I don't think there's anyone more paranoid than you. But if no, that is true. Who told you there was? If they're better than us, I'm not going to enjoy it. So, uh, OK. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you would have hated it last week, then. So, oh, now <laughs> I am paranoid. Uh, so, number six, Project Almanac, which you haven't seen. Stuart um, Britton. And you said yes, 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 because of... Uh, the Kinks. Right, good. The scriptwriters uh, on Project Almanac more or less acknowledged the better time-travelling stories out there by shoehorning in references to them in the film's opening ten minutes. After that, I was reminded just how good Looper and Primer were by comparison to Project Almanac, a pointless, tepid, time-travelling film with an incomprehensible story, characters I didn't care about, and the hackneyed motif of a geek being indicated by, hey, putting on specs. If I could, I'd go back in time and slap the idiot who greenlit this drivel. So it's like a 50-50 there, Stuart. <laughs> Natalie what? Harvey. Yes. Project Almanac should have come with a warning. Handheld camera work all the way through made me feel giddy and I had to look away many times. I might have enjoyed it more if I didn't feel like I was on a fairground ride. Adam Scogland on our Facebook page, Project Almanac. Fun, largely due to the likeable cast, but my goodness, that shaky cam is going to create some motion sickness issues, which it clearly has done. Uh, already. See, I could barely listen to that because all I was thinking was, I like something on a Saturday. Roast beef on Sundays. All right. This is a non-stop I playlist. I go to Blackpool for my holidays. Sit in the open. 
So, so you well, started it. You started it because you went, yes, yes, yes. If I know that you're going to sing the songs that I mentioned, I'm not going to mention anything ever again. All right, I won't do musical. it. Okay. Uh, the Wedding Ringer. There you go. Another movie that you haven't been bothered to see. No, but I'll tell you an interesting story about The Wedding Ringer. The Wedding Ringer's script... And when um, when Robbie Collin reviewed this, he referred to... It's a lovely phrase. He didn't like it at all. And he referred to croutons of comedy. <laughs> they were, they were in this great sort of soup of terribleness, these croutons of comedy. The Reading Ringer's script was discovered in a box in a warehouse after Miramax's uh, back catalogue... Uh, I know this because I did a, a, a radio four program about the business of film. We had the guy who found it to talk about. It. They were sent out to go and see, go and look in that warehouse and see if there are any nuggets amidst the wasteland of somewhere through all these boxes. They found the script of the wedding ringer and went, you know what? We think this is a gem. Is it? Well, the only comment we have is from Andy Scott. Okay. We watched The Wedding Ring over the weekend, passed the six laughs test, oh. a nice way, a nice enough way to kill Sunday afternoon. Okay. Well, there we go. So we have a, a, a thumbs up from a listener and a big thumbs down from Robbie Collin. Uh, Sean the Sheep is at... No, 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 you've jumped over... Oh, I've jumped over Kingsman, yes. which we'd never do, because if you jump over Kingsman, you'll probably get uh, one of those swords where you don't, where, <laughs> where you don't, don't expect... Want it. But Kingsman's Secret Service, we kind of said what there is to say, haven't we, do you think? This is how we do the top ten. We go down and we say what there has to say, and we say it again and again and again until it's not in the top ten. Okay. Kingsman, uh, Secret Service, is this week's number four. Mark, tell us everything that we need to know about that. I mean, the whole you know end controversy aside, because I think we have covered that. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Matthew Vaughan is that he has a very particular take on the way in which films uh, should be funded and should be made. And again, this was because of this, this, this thing I was doing. And he was talking about there being no such thing as the British film industry and him wanting to be sort of independent filmmaker. And so due to the way he works, he tends to independently finance the films. They then get picked up by bigger studios. In the case of this, he raised the money and then Fox came in. And, of course, there was a little bit of... Um, when, when they got to the BBFC, they tri- apparently they did trim it down to get a 15. Um, but what's, whether you like the film or not, and I know some people absolutely hate it, I thought it was kind of fun... With some, I think the, the laddish elements w- w- didn't, didn't, he didn't quite, he didn't rein them in properly. And I thought at the end uh, that they got completely out of control. But he does make his own films. He makes the films that he wants to make and he makes them on his terms. And whether one thinks they're good or bad, and I think, I mean, I, I really <clears> like <throat> Kick Ass. Uh, I like this enough. Uh, I think it's flawed, but I like it enough. You, you know, he, he does dance to his own beat. Uh, now, so Sean the Sheep. Then we can move on to, because you've done Kingsman now, that's sort of all done and dusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean the Sheep is at number three, and an email from Isaac, who's five years old. Oh, great, fine, brilliant. Hang on. I went to see... What am I hanging on for? I'm just sitting up straight to listen to what Isaac, okay. because five year, I'm very interested to know what a five-year-old thought of Sean the Sheep. I went to see Sean the Sheep because my granddad said it would be good. Granddad being the Reverend Kevin Fear, by the way, who I think we've heard from before. We because have, yeah. the Reverend Fear is someone <laughs> to go and hear anyway. <laughs> the Reverend Fear will see you now. <laughs> I went to see Sean the Sheep because my granddad said it would be good. I went with Nana and Granddad Stuart. I. Oh. This is my favourite email, Evs. It must be his other granddad. Because he doesn't want to go with Granddad. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No. I told them that we needed to put sweets in my cloth bag. <laughs> see, there is the code That's it. in action. It's just, this is. We could, we could sweep the board genius. in the, any election in New Zealand yeah. with this code. Anyway, Isaac continues. 
This was my second film. It was better than Paddington because it was funnier. I liked wow, it. Wow, when, wow, better than Paddington. I liked it when the caravan crashed through the gate. I didn't talk in the film. What film should I go and see next? From Isaac, five years old. <sighs> that kid is going to be running a country when he's grown up. Yes, that's right. But we'll be in government, so that's I think right. We'll yes. have a few yeah. things to say about that. So Isaac is five. He's seen Paddington. He's seen Sean. He's asking us what to see next. Well, I would say Big Hero Six with with the provider. No, that's already been uh, in a PS. They say no. Oh, because they say no. Okay, fine. Well, because it does have darker themes. In I it. think that's because of darker themes. Thank you. Are you going to be finishing my sentences for the rest I'm of the ne- show? Rest of the show, yes. Okay, fine. No, I was just looking at what else is, is on in cinemas at the moment, um, and I can't see anything. I mean, if you're Peppa talking... Peppa Pig might be a little bit... I don't know. Well, be. I haven't seen Peppa Pig. I don't know, no. but I mean, it's... I, it, it's I, I doubt it has the charm of Shaun the Sheep. I doubt many things have the charm, charm of Shaun the Sheep. Which There's I nothing in the tent. Which I, I, which I love. So in that case, you're going to be left with a DVD, and then The World is Your Oyster. I would say Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which you may well have seen already. Uh, obviously, Five, Your Perfect Age for Poppins, which is fantastic and is also, uh, you know, two hours long, or over two hours long. So, I mean, yes, there's a, there's a huge... But in cinemas at the moment, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that's more delightful than Shaun the Sheep. It is fabulous. And congratulations once again to Ardman, who, you know, blood, sweat and tears go into making those things. And uh, it, it just shows. It You can see the love, the attention, the thumbprints, the physicality, the passion, the... Ta- you know, they're just great. And I really like Shaun the Sheep. Ben Smith says, uh, I was wondering whilst listening to The Good Doctor's review of Shaun the Sheep, whether it had supplanted La Quattro Volte as his favourite near-silent <laughs> film about ruminant a- animals. Actually, that would be an interesting double bill, although not probably not for a five-year-old, but yeah. yes. But the, the Quattrovolti, which for ages you referred to as the silent goat farming film. Did I? You did, because you didn't want to go and see it. So you went, I said you should go and see the Quattrovolti, and you went, oh, the silent goat farming film. Oh, that's true. In a sort of dismissive... Yes, that sounds like me. Yeah, it does, because it was you. I think I had a point. Well, no, you didn't. Cause silent it's... goat farming... But it's about so much more than silent goat it's, farming. What's it really about? It's about life, and the, it's about the circle of life, funnily enough. It's a bit Lion Kingy. Add it to the list. Wow, it's a big one. Uh, so here we go. Look, at number, at number two, it's Big Hero 6. So yeah. I went with Child 3. Oh, it's Child 3 fun. said, let's go and see Big Hero 6. So, OK, I was surprised, you know, I was surprised. But surprised because what? Well, I it didn't think as Child 3 is 15. I yeah. think, you know, anyway, halfway through... He leant over and said, can you laugh slightly more quietly because you're embarrassing? (laughs) Now, given that parents are just embarrassing anyway, I thought it was completely fantastic. Great. I'm really glad. Genuinely fantastic. So we do the fist bump thing, you know, now it's it's if you haven't seen it, the fist bump thing isn't funny at all. (laughs) But as soon as anyone goes (laughs) laugh out loud, funny, you have fallen. You have fallen on a scale of one to ten. How would you rate your pain? I loved it, and Child 2, in my case, who was 14, loved it too. First half, definitely better than the second half when it becomes Scooby-Doo, but Baymax is going to have his own movie, isn't he? I mean, that's going to... Yeah, I mean, I, what, what I, you know, I loved the environment. I thought the whole San Francisco thing worked really well. Didn't you just want to go and live in just San Francisco? And, 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 and wander the streets, right? And find an excuse to go and see this film, because you have to see it, because it's, it, it's laugh-out-loud funny, to and, the extent that I was embarrassing. And did you yeah. think, because obviously one of the things that, that you flagged up slightly earlier with that email, is that it does deal with, with loss um, in the way that the, the classic yeah. Disneys do. And it, that's what, did you feel that it handled that well? Because I did. Yes, I thought it, it handled it really well. Entirely appropriate. It didn't feel as though it would have been... 
forced just because they wanted to make it an issue movie. It was, uh, but mainly you'll come out feeling very, very funny. But it's a PG for those reasons. Yeah, so yeah. it isn't a you. Yeah. Alistair, and, and, and you, you would say five is too young, would you? Most of the cinema seem to be full of five-year-olds, but I would say yes. I mean, I would say it's a PG for a reason, but sure, sure, sure. If, if in doubt, go see it, check it out. Alistair and Preston. Yeah, actually, um, that's your excuse, <clears throat> isn't it? You turn up to buy a ticket, just checking it out. Just, you should be able to have a discount. Got a five-year-old, just, just checking it out, yeah. just checking it out. Uh, Alistair and Preston, am I the only one who doesn't like Big Hero 6? Went to watch it uh, with the other half this week. She loved it. I found it to be extremely dull. Really? Characters were not engaging. Baymax's slapstick just became annoying. Oh, no, 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 no. The plot dragged, and I now anticipate years of hell as BH6 linked merchandise and memes flood social media. All of this, I say, from a background of superhero and family film fandom. Well, I'm really surprised because I thought it was the most delightful film I've seen. Well, say, what, say what you wanted to say, then, which is you're wrong. Well, obviously he's wrong. Good. Fine. I mean, I think that's uh, everywhere. The nation has just chanted <laughs> with one accord. With a, no! Will Gartrell, uh, Big Hero 6, the illegitimate love child of Iron Man, How to Train Your Dragon and Interstellar. Quite brilliant. <laughs> that's Which is an, inter- an interesting point of view. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> number one movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, I mean, as we said at the time, it's not as bad as it could have been. I think the thing that's that's interesting about it is that Sam Taylor-Johnson has rather brilliantly emerged from the whole thing uh, with her head held high. I mean, she's made a movie which, you know, opened really big, took an enormous amount of money. And what everybody thinks is the stuff that's good about it is Sam Taylor Johnson and the stuff that's bad about it is E.L. James. I mean, the, the, the book, what I have read of the book, which I have to say is very little because I did find the prose unreadable. The dialogue is is just, I mean, beyond parody. It's beyond parodic. And E.L. James had insisted that her dialogue was used rather than the rewritten dialogue, which was provided by Patrick Marber. There's also a story that Kelly Marcel found um, found writing, you know, her, the, the script very difficult. And then immediately the film had opened, Sam Taylor-Johnson was talking in the press about the sort of struggles that they'd had. And since then, there's been nothing, but, you know, there's a story broke that E.L. E. L. James wants to write the script for the next one. There was a story about whether or not Jamie Dorn was, you know, was... was was actually going to be there or not, because he had some reservations about it. But, I think it's his other half. <clears throat> yes, that was, well, that's, that's the story that yes, I read in the, in the press, but, you know, but who knows? That, that, you know, that, that could well just be a press story. But what's important is that Sam Taylor-Johnson looks like she's not going to do this, the, the next one, which is, I, I think would make sense, but she's come out of it really... She, she brought the thing in, she did what everybody's generally agreed is the best job out of something which is utterly rubbish, and the best it could be whilst actually having to repeat the lines of dialogue that E.L. James wrote... Um, I mean, it's very, very middle of the road, very vanilla, very nine and a half weeks and not very good, um, it has to be said. But congratulations to Sam Taylor-Johnson for managing to, you know, to, to come out of it as, uh, you know, as the one who's come out of it with the head held high. There we go. I delivered a massive blockbuster movie working with that novel. Thank you. Now I'll go and do something that's interesting. Uh, Edward O'Brien on an email here in Japan... Simon and Mark. Actually, the email says Dear S&M, obviously, at the beginning. Yeah, very good. Here in Japan, Fifty Shades was shamelessly marketed towards the Valentine's Day audience. So, yeah, as it was here, open the Valentine's Day. As the Day, perfect yeah. date movie. In order to get as many bums on seats as possible, the distri- which isn't a scene in the movie, <laughs> the distributors agreed to showing the movie <laughs> well done. heavily censored in order to get a 15 certificate. 15 certificate. This means that the movie's many sex scenes play out with the rutting twosomes naughty bits concealed by large black circles. <laughs> 
Well, yes, okay. I mean, there's not much of that in the uncut version, Fe- to be honest. It's... Female breasts and bottoms of any gender are right. apparently not allowed in 15-rated movies here. So audiences, audiences have been complaining. Where is this? Japan, about having to sit through over half the movie looking at <laughs> an almost entirely black screen whilst listening to badly dubbed S&M. <laughs> that's not us, that's the other type. <laughs> I'd had no intention of seeing it before, but after no, reading no, this report, I tempted yes. to go and see what sounds like an enjoyably surreal experience. Fifty Shades of Black. Well, that just sounds like a very interesting way to edit, you know, so that actually you just put a huge black circle over the bit that you're not supposed to see. But there's something quite honest about that, because at least it's like, look, there's something here that you can't see. Carry on. It's not like trying to edit round it to pretend it wasn't there. It's like drawing your attention to it. Yeah. Anyway... um, Ed, thank you very much indeed. So you can email the show as mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can watch the live stream. You didn't feel the need to go see Fifty Shades? Funnily enough, no. Um, if I had to choose, I'd go and see Big Hero 6 again. Yeah. I could, if I could do that now. I could go and see it now. Yeah. I know yeah. we've got a show to do. There was a, there, uh, I, t- I told you, uh, I told you there was a very, there was a, a lovely article by uh, Stuart Barr online in which he talked about going, he was taken to, taken to see it, as I think, <laughs> taken to see it by his uh, partner. And, um, and he said he, the, the movie was, you know, whatever, but he said it was like being in the Rocky Horror Show. He just loved being in the audience. He said he'd never seen a more sort of, you know, an Is audience. this Big Hero 6 you're talking about still? No, Fifty Shades. Oh, Fifty, 50 Shades, Fifty Shades, yeah. 50 shades, yeah. Matthew Wood uh, is catching up uh, with various points of order from from previous shows. There is actually a connection, he says, between Mark E. Smith and Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, I hope so. Go on. As Mark pointed out in his review, Fifty Shades began life as a Twilight fan fiction. Yes. And the four were actually hired to contribute to the soundtrack of the Twilight movies. Luckily, Mark E. Smith made sure he was paid up front as the music they submitted was rejected by producers (laughs) for being too scary. (laughs) When asked about it in an interview, Mark e. Smith <laughs> makes perhaps the insight of our time regarding the Twilight series when he ruminates that, and I quote, vampirism is a crime at the end of the day. It's <laughs> a fair point. Did you ever see the fall play live? Uh, no. Really? How did you manage to... Why would... Well, it's just because everyone's seen the fall at once. No, they haven't. Very few people. Some people have, but okay. the majority oh, no, of no, I'm just I'm surprised. Just when you say everybody has seen the well, fall, I mean, been, that's clearly just... Yeah, a, I mean, in one of their many incarnations, you know, it was just like everybody had seen the fall. But you, did you not introduce a Top of the Pops when they were doing Victoria? I don't think so, no. OK. I have bad information. I'm sorry if I've let you down personally. You have, anyway. I feel crushed. Mm-hmm. It's, time, that's either. it's time for a big guest, Mark. That's, is it? That's what it is. You need to do that to the Steve Wright. It's time for a big guest. Um... So let's talk about the new science fiction robot AI movie uh, from director Neil Blomkamp. It is, of course, Chappie, which comes out next week, Yes, I do believe. Which you've seen, I haven't. It stars Sigourney Weaver, who you're going to hear from uh, in just a moment, and in this clip with her co-star, Hugh Jackson. Matt, this is the work of Dion. It's the work of some filthy rogue program that he's been writing, and last night he brought a droid in here, and it was sentient. And, and have you seen this? Do you know about this? I told him no. Okay, that's a lot worse than just failing to work. So let's use this situation to make a certain other robot shine. Do it. Destroy that robot. Thank you, ma'am. Burn it to ash. And that's a clip from Chappie, of course. I'm delighted to say Sigourney Weaver joins us. Sigourney, hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm Well, I have a slight um, throat issue. Well, I think it's very sexy. Thank you very much. Can we have that on record? <laughs> I think that's really good. I say that because I also have a slight 
And uh, that's what people have been telling me, right. to be polite. It is, well, it's very sexy. <laughs> that's, I'm just saying it because we're now, we're now equal. <laughs> so tell us, uh, so Chappie, well, it's a very, very interesting movie. So tell us uh, who Chappie is and where you fit in, uh, in in the story. Right. So it takes place in the future in Johannesburg where all the policemen are robots. They're protecting the population against all these gangsters. So a group of gangsters who were played by D. Antwood, the rap group, really by themselves, um, they decide they're going to kidnap a robot policeman to help them do heists and make money. But uh, inadvertently, they kidnap this sort of sweet robot that Dev Patel's character has just created to be a, a sentient robot, a robot who feels and writes poetry and does paintings and things like that. So suddenly this robot who's like a baby is growing up in this gangster home and they're teaching him how to be cool and walk and wear bling and kill people and everything. And it's it's a comedy. It's an action movie. It also is very original and I think very touching. And you're the boss of uh, of this weapons company, Tetraval. I am. I'm the I'm the one of the rare women CEOs who runs a weapons corporation. And you're not very nice. I'm, I don't think we like you very much. Well, I think if you're the board of directors, you would like me a great well, you're very deal successful. because all I care about is the bottom line, and I'm not interested in creating robots at great expense who can paint and write poetry. I think for my character, she thinks those activities shouldn't be done even by humans. So for her to spend money creating a robot who who cares about things like that, I think is just for her bad business. But it's true that I, you could say I'm one of the villains of the piece, even though I think I do a very good job as a CEO of a weapons corporation. I'm surrounded by weapons. I think about nothing but weapons. And the only pictures on my desk are pictures of dogs. Well, and there is there is a, a dispute at the heart of your company. Uh, there is Dev Patel, who's just made this sentient robot uh, that you mentioned. And there, in this open plan office, is Hugh Jackman looking really bad, which is great for us. <laughs> he cannot get away with a mullet. That's not very good. And he has the worst shorts ever. Well... I think if anyone can get away with a mullet, it is Hugh Jackman. No, that's true. He, well, he, he can have the mullet, but he can't have the shorts. Right. Don't wear shorts. Not, not both. <laughs> don't wear shorts to work. But just explain what, what his take is on artificial intelligence and the kind of – and the moose, which is his robot, which right. he wants to champion. So he is on the other side of the creative team. He wants to build a really destructive robot, which he has built, in fact. He's built a, 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 a version of it called the Moose, which can tear people apart and destroy a whole city. It looks like a Terminator, basically. Yeah. I it? mean, it's actually kind of cute, I think. It's kind of got frog legs, and but it's, it's fierce. It looks cute? Well, I run this a weapons oh, you're, you're corporation, so guy, yeah, of course okay. I'm, I've been influenced by that. But um, so this is, and he puts on a helmet, and he's able to control what the what the moose does. So he is the sentient creature behind the moose, which in itself is a problem, I think, because he's very religious and thinks of anything like Chappie, which is a little feeling robot, as as the work of the devil. So his his whole 
purpose right in the movie really is to make the moose shine and destroy this this evil robot which is this dear little chappy and and in all of these um storylines that you're talking about is there a sense which the hugh jackman character maybe um highlights the fact that we're talking when you talk about artificial intelligence and robots you are talking uh about consciousness and uh, and you talk about the soul and is that really one of the main things that uh, that the movie is trying to discuss well i do think what's interesting about the movie is if if science fiction is as jim cameron says the exploration of what it is to be human when you're talking about a sentient robot is it only humans who can be human and why is it then that the most humane character in the story turns out to be a robot so all these ideas of what is consciousness and what is compassion and what is perception, all these things which we consider some of our best human qualities, can we recreate them in robotic beings? And why can't we create more of them in ourselves? Do you get um, a gut instinct for a movie like this? When, when a script arrives and it involves this kind of area, do you think, this is class, you know, this is, I want to do this? Well, in this case, I was a huge admirer of Neil Bloomkamp's work from District 9 and Elysium. Uh, I feel he's a very different kind of director, very original, and his science fiction, although it's set in the future, the the themes are so timely and so relevant to right now. I mean, I think robots are about to appear everywhere in about five minutes. Um, the movie, the movie feels as though it's like a, a couple of years hence. It's not, yeah, it's not you know a century from now. No, and I think that that robots are about to happen on the scene all over the world in many, many unexpected ways, and it will be for good and for bad. Is and, that based on the the research that you did for the character? Because I think. Uh, it, Neil, the director, he sent you a whole bunch of information about what robots can do. I know, and it was pretty hair-raising stuff. Um, For instance, the Japanese have dancing girl robots, very uh, attractive. I don't know what else they do, but anyway, they're that kind of robot. And and also Dion, Deb Patel's character, has these very sweet robots in his home – that say, hello, Dion, welcome home, would you like a cup of tea? That kind of thing. And I wouldn't mind that kind of robot. Can you, do you talk to your phone and do you allow your phone to talk to you? No, I killed Siri right away. <laughs> I thought she was so obnoxious and always wrong. Like the first question I asked her was, well, if I wanted to bury a dead body, where would I do that? And she'd say something like, go to Google. She's very unhelpful. That's not very helpful. No. And Neil Bloomkamp said, when he was talking about casting the movie, he said, I get to work with Ripley. Ah, is that how he thinks of me? Doesn't know me very well. I get scared of spiders. No, I just, you know, but I think, um, I thought it was very interesting. And there is a lot of comment, as you know, a lot of discussion about what's happening in the future. And you're on Jimmy Fallon's program just the other day. And he raises the prospect. uh, He says, there's discussion of you doing another alien movie. Is it true? And the crowd, they go crazy. It's like an ovation. So you know that this is something that's going to be coming up and discussed. What can you tell us officially, Sigourney Weaver? Well, I can tell you that Neil Bloomkamp is a huge fan of the Alien series. I know that. And and wore the tapes out watching them. And that if he is 
interested and serious as he seems to be about writing and directing uh, another final alien uh, so we can take that poor woman out of drifting in space for the last time. I think that would be a very interesting prospect. So that's a yes then. Well, no, I, I think that there's a long way to go. I'm delighted the fans are, fans are happy, and I think the work that Neil has shared with me is incredibly impressive. And uh, I, I think it would be great to see it happen. But it's, you know, to me, it's still, we're still dreaming about it, talking yes. about it. And, and, and more closely than that is Avatar. Where, where are you on, uh, on the next Avatar? Film? Well, I know about as much about Avatar as I do about Alien. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you just about as much. We are theoretically supposed to start this year on three avatars, two, three, and four, which we'll shoot simultaneously, in mostly in CGI, and um, it's that's going to be very exciting because I have a, a new character, and so that will be quite challenging. And um, so it's going to be fun. I get to work with two of my favorite, favorite, favorite directors. Can I ask you um, about Patricia Arquette's speech um, at, at the Oscars just a few days ago when she was talking about wage equality? And uh, it got a fantastic round of applause and everybody was uh, appears to be uh, all in favour. It's amazing that it's taken until 2015 for it to become an issue. What did you think when you heard that? Well, I think it's been an issue for a long time. I didn't watch the Oscars because I was over here. But I heard about it and um, uh, absolutely wage equality uh, – uh, in Hollywood, but certainly wage equality all over America, um, women are paid about 70% of what men are paid. And I think in, in, in Hollywood, uh, there's always been a huge difference between what men are paid and what women are paid. And it should change, and it's ridiculous. I'm very happy that she won, and, uh, and I'm very happy that she, she made that her message. Yeah. Meryl Streep, who was on the show a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, the camera cut to her and she was stabbing her finger. She was pointing. She was waving her fist. You know, like she yeah. was at a political rally. Yeah. Well, I think it is a very political issue for us. And um, since it's mostly men who run Hollywood, um, I think it's and there aren't enough of us. Uh, it's it's you know we really need to we probably need to actually organize. And there's this um, uh, online campaign, and the hashtag is Ask Her More. Basically, saying to journalists, stop, stop talking to uh, actresses about what they're wearing. Just ask them the ordinary questions. I think this all started with Jennifer Lawrence, who, when asked about what she was wearing, she said, "This is a top and this is a bottom," and that's it. That's all she would say. Well, I always like talking about what I'm wearing. I guess I'm a throwback. I'm wearing Dries and uh, Escada, and so. <laughs> But I can talk about other things. I think I think fashion is fun. So um, I think it depends on, you know, what I like is that my character wears only Armani, power clothes, what we used to call power suits. Well, if you're selling weapons and robots around the world. It is hard to know exactly what to wear. Should I have worn a black leather cat suit, for instance? Maybe that would have gotten me more contracts. Do you think? Well, if we do chappy too, I'll have to figure that out. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Sigourney, we were talking about uh, chappy and a few other uh, pieces, and that movie comes out you next week. shameless flirt. I was not flirting. <laughs> not much. Which was the flirty bit then? Here, okay, here. Oh, 
you, 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 you remember the bit when the interview started and then yeah. the bit at the end? I interviewed Sigourney Weaver some years ago uh, when we were making a documentary about Alien. And can I just say it was down the line talking about stuff and things and Alien and this and directors. None of this kind of, oh, you know, you've got a sexy throaty voice. She did explain that that's because she too had a sexy throaty voice, and I, after the, uh, the I, I, I offered her, I, I, I offered her some uh, some cough sweets, which she thought were very good. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's all Meryl's going to be jealous. That's all. Do you know what I'm saying? Meryl could be as jealous as she wishes. <laughs> really? That's that's because <laughs> you saw that film. You saw what happens when she you gets cross. And you haven't seen Chappie just yet, have you? No, no, I'm seeing it next week, and it's all under embargo. But anyway, when you go and see it. Don't think Jar Jar Binks is a robot. Don't think that. Okay, try and el- oh, thanks for putting that into my mind. Don't actually have that as a, as, as a thought because that won't be helpful. Jar Jar Binks as a robot. I only in places. Okay, fine, <coughs> brilliant. Thank you. And there we go. That's up there with Forrest Gump on a tractor for utterly spoiling films. Thank you. So it's uh, it's eight minutes to three o'clock. BBC Radio Five Live emails, please. Mail at bbc.co.uk eight five zero five eight. Let's do a brand new movie. So shall we do the boy next door? Um, rhetorical rhetorical question. Yes, we shall do the boy next door. So uh, making uh, a brief stop in cinemas before you know finding its natural home on DVD. Low, but th- th- as far as I understand, this cost four million dollars, uh, and I think it took something like thirty-five million dollars in the state. So it exists for, for an economic reason, which makes perfect sense. It is, it is hard to think of a more generic uh, movie. So the story is uh, Jennifer Lopez is an all but single mom. So she's, her, her husband has uh, had an affair, and she's kicked him out. But now he's kind of around and about, and you know, but she doesn't want him back. But he wants to be back. We don't trust him. He's a slime bag. Meanwhile. Into the next door house moves uh, Renter Hunk, who spends an awful lot of time walking around, you know, past windows, taking his T-shirt off. Don't we all? Mm. Uh, and uh, and so he spends an awful lot of time doing that. And she's sort of, you know, she's a she's a teacher, and he's you know he's younger than her, and obviously it's completely inappropriate. And then one night, you know, nature, well, nature takes its course. Mm. They, get, they get old. They get old. They get old. So one night they, they they get a little bit older together, and she immediately decides this is a very bad thing. At which point he turns from being, you know, hunky neighbour walking around with his shirt off to Mister Psycho Stalker. At this point, she should have known that. She should have known because she's seen this film before. Yes, we've all seen this film before. It was on Channel Five, ten o'clock Friday every week from now until forever. Very good. Uh, anyway, then. The husband comes back and the husband's trying to re-ingratiate himself with the kid. Does he have his top on? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Husband top on. Psycho boy next door. Top right, so hus- husbands keep... Uh, mm-hmm. right, that's how you can spot the mm-hmm. crazy guy. And uh, so he comes in and uh, he makes a total nuisance of himself. Uh, and here's a clip of him making nuisance of himself. Hey, Dad, this is, uh, this is Noah. Remember I've been talking about him all? Hey, nice to meet you. Okay. I feel like I know you. He talks about you so much. He told me about the alternator you put in the truck. <laughs> Oh, actually, yeah, I've been helped out, too, so... Uh, yeah? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was so cool. I had no idea you could do that yourself. Well, that's what friends are for. Hey, Mrs. Peterson. Hey, Noah. Oh, it looks perfect. You tell them what happened this weekend? What happened? Oh, there was, there was a big thunderstorm up here. You, you guys didn't get it up there? No, beautiful. Dries a bone at the lake. Well, it got pretty wet here. Wow. You know what? Big day tomorrow, first day of school. It's getting kind of late. It's like 8.30. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, I, I got to get going. It's a big day tomorrow. I'll walk out with you, Mr. Peterson. Oh, I'm, I'm going to stay around a while, thanks. Well, you know, I'll walk out with you, Noah. Yeah, come on. Uh, do you want to take a cookie for the road? 
Love your mother's cookies. They're great, right? Uh, nice to meet you. Hey, you too, pal. They, get, they, they sounded all, they sounded all shirted there. I was trying. I was trying oh, he was well, he was wearing a, a, a tight t shirt whilst whilst making you know innuendo. You you were picking up on mm-hmm. the innuendo. Mm-hmm. Fine. Um, and so and then it follows the natural course that you know now he's more and more obsessed and he's more and more stalkery and everything gets more and more. So it's I mean it's one of those things. I saw, I saw it in a in a screening room and you and it just everything about it said made for DVD. Um, in America, it's played uh, fairly well. To, apparently, uh, the audience has skewed uh, to uh, more women uh, members than than is the standard demographic. And as I said, it's more than made its money back. And it does. It, you know that phrase that we use about putting tab A into slot B. Well, I mean that doesn't even begin to cover. Which doesn't work because tab A should, tab a should go into, into, into yeah. slot A. But it doesn't even begin to cover just quite how generic it is. There was apparently when it came into the BBFC one uh, moment, brief moment. Of violence that would have pushed it over into an 18 certificate they just trimmed that out and made it 15 certificate which means it's utterly middle of the road it's not bad it just it's it's just headed very very soon for a 10 o'clock slot on uh, on, on channel five um but it's you know honestly at the beginning you could watch the first 10 minutes of it and i could say to you okay fine tell me how the rest of it goes and you go okay well that happens and that happens and that and that, that, that. if you were watching videos and i mean i know this is sort of my default position because i used to work as the video reviewer for sight and sound uh, in the 1980s and there was a period when every week there'd be a slew of uh, straight to video erotic thrillers and uh, many of them would have exactly this same plot and many of them would look exactly like this movie and not be done no worse incidentally four million dollars for a straight to video movie is quite a big budget four million dollars for a theatrical movie is, is nothing at all so the things turned a profit but it is absolutely you know by numbers could have been directed by a robot but isn't bad isn't bad is exactly what it says on the tin and will and will provide staple viewing for people home from the pub on a friday night who are undiscerningly drifting through the channels and suddenly you know stumble across jennifer lopez and a bloke with his shirt off um, Hugh McKenna says, <clears throat> saw a preview of Boy Next Door a few weeks ago, really? and although it's far from being great cinema, yeah. it's the kind of trashy B-movie that's completely self-aware, yeah. free of any pretentiousness, and very entertaining because of that. It's also very stupid. <laughs> yes, it but, is very stupid. But you're either along for the ride in films of this kind, or you're not. And I had a blast watching one of my favourite actresses. Uh, Lopez is capable of much better, and I would like to see an actress cited by the late, great Roger Ebert as one of his favourites, and one of the best in the business, return to making the kind of movies that put her amongst the highest-paid actresses in Hollywood. Yes, yeah, that's right, she was. She absolutely was. And now doing basically sort of, you know, straight-to-video... That thing about it being really stupid, there's a moment in it in which he discovers that she's, uh, you know, that she's an English teacher and he wants to impress her. And so he gets her... An, a, he gives her this book, he gives her the Iliad, and she goes, I can't have this, it's a first edition. Where, where did he get that? <laughs> you know, fine, I just happened to... Anyway, moving... To, it, it's Everything functions at exactly that level. And then in the end, in the sort of final 20 minutes, it goes, you know, it goes sort of 15-rated slasher, slasher stalkery. But, uh, but knowing what it is... Means it, it, it's right. It has no pretensions at all. I'm just, can I just spool, mm. spool you back to the the Iliad, mm-hmm. which is is that a plot point? Is it significant that he's that he's got? No, that? it's just significant that they have a conversation about it, um, and then and then it is it is, it is it is, and they have a conversation about it, and then he goes, yeah, that's great, and then and then and then he, the thing is, he's gone off and got a thoughtful gift. So this would be. But why it, is it the Iliad? 
There must be a re- there must be a reason. That well, they have a conversation, <clears throat> which is that he demonstrates that he's read it. And there's a thing about literature isn't cool, but then literature is cool. And then he demonstrates that he's sort of he's sexy and seductive because hey, he's read and he knows the value of a book and he knows where to get a first edition. And he looks good in his with his shirt off and he spends a lot of time standing by windows with a light on behind him while Jennifer Lopez looks out of her window whilst eating a cookie. So and it's a first edition mm-hmm. from eleven ninety four BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we'll make our own judgment on that. A text from Andy, age 52. Hello, Andy. Chaps, it's my birthday, and I'm planning and a I'll family... And I'll cry if I want to. I'm planning a family cinema trip. So oh, I thought you said it's my birthday, and I'm planning a family... Cinema trip. trip. <laughs> I, he's already planned a family. He's, he's got the family. Yeah. I, I want to see Shaun the Sheep, but my, Yay! Se- my 17-year-old son says no way. He says it's a CBBC film. Mm-hmm. Can you confirm that he won't be embarrassed by this movie, Andy, age 52? I can. I mean, I, I went in with the same reservation. Let's go back. You're 17, OK? You're not a grown man. You're a 17-year-old and you've got... And you say, hey, I'm crazy happy and things like that. So thanks. It was crazy helpful. So um, just think 17. Oh, Sean the sheet. Well, mm. I, I, no, as I was... Mm. Tr- as, mm, what? Mm. See? Yeah, you're just doing Shaun the Sheep noises now. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how the characters talk. I had the same reservations, knowing that some time ago for the Culture Show, we went down to uh, Ardman Animation Studios in Bristol, and they were making Pirates and an Adventure with uh, Scientists. Scientists and Adventure with Pirates. Pirates and Adventure with Scientists. One of those. One of those two. They were making, there was two of them, making them back-to-back, yeah. 3D, one each. And, uh, and I briefly went onto the set of Shaun the Sheep, where they were doing the TV show. And it was, you know, wonderful and magical, but I was aware that what they were doing was making something for, you know, to, for, for, for the, the CBeebies audience. And I thought this probably isn't going to quite have the zing of uh, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. The joy of the feature film is that I went in thinking this, this may play younger and I'll probably come out thinking, well, it's sweet and charming, but it's... But I just laughed the whole way through, and I was there with uh, with James King, and he felt exactly the same way. He's not 17 either, though. Well, he's more 17 than I am. That's true. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, and I, I... Look, I know people of all ages who've been to see it and have been totally charmed, but it is really wonderful and funny, and, uh, I mean, and uh, is the 17-year-old suggesting something else? No, it well, doesn't appear to be. He just wants to know whether he's going to be embarrassed by the movie. I, you're, not, you're not going to be embarrassed by the movie. You're really not, and you're not going to be embarrassed by having seen it. In fact, it would be a cool thing for a 17-year-old hey, to do. Anyway, Andy, if you want to embarrass your 17-year-old, try Fifty Shades of Grey. That'll be a great family hit. Yeah, that- Except he's 17, so obviously that can't work. However... You could stand on tiptoes. Here's the point. Andy, you're 52. It's your birthday. It's your call. Yeah. Think, but then 17-year-old, oh, I don't want to come. Can I see you in the pizza place? I'll just get the chips at the end. No, um, no I can no. see. I can see. I can see his point. I what? think you're ex- you're conceding defeat. Threaten him with the wedding ringer. <laughs> Apparently, mm. <laughs> or at least actually, well, we had one listener who quite liked it. Robbie said it wasn't any good. I haven't seen it. I couldn't possibly yeah, yeah, comment. If you have any uh, advice, by the way, if you have gone as a family, on family, on family, to, uh, to see Shaun the Sheep, and if you, particularly if you took a seventeen-year-old uh, male uh, with you, how did it go down? Were they embarrassed? 
It's Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Nine minutes past three o'clock. Here's something that's new and in the posters. So the second best exotic Marigold Hotel, um, clearly the sequel to... First of all, credit to them for... For getting the title. For getting the title through. The Americans didn't want it called that because they... Because it's just basically asking for everyone to go, yeah, and it is second best. So um, the original was based on a novel to which there isn't a sequel. So when when this was happening, it was a matter of Old Parker, the writer, and John Madden, who's a good director, um, uh, getting together and trying to figure out whether there was a new story now again you know king's speech and best exotic marigold hotel were films which if you saw them in the cinema you'll know that one of the things that was interesting about them was that they played to an older audience than was at the time considered to be the traditional cinema audience and this started the whole thing about the gray pound that actually what you want to do if you want to make is, is to tap into those people who aren't going to the cinema because they're fed up with transformers they're fed up with superhero movies they don't think there's anything for them and and uh, the whole story about the reason at the end of king's speech everyone applauding which we talked about a lot on this show one of the people said, said well yes the reason for that is because the last time they went to the cinema they all stood for the national anthem them at the end of it and so it's to do with appealing to this other end but the thing with best exotic was because it had dev patel the idea was that it would it would also have you know something sort of skew slightly younger so it wouldn't necessarily be just what's what's referred to as the uh, as the great panel is well to, it, it was incredibly well received not just critically it got good reviews not all good reviews but you know enough good reviews there was famously you know the loved it sheena from pudsey quotes on the posters the, the the campaign was all to do with real people telling you how much they'd enjoyed it forget these critics andrew collins wrote a very very interesting column about that in the radio radio times and um so with that kind of success you think okay well we have to revisit it and managed to reunite the surviving cast because remember you know if you've seen the film not everybody starts the first film ends the first film so reunite the surviving members and let's see where we can take the story from here so the story now is that uh dev patel sunny has decided that what he wants to do is to expand the best exotic because the best exotic has done so well it's absolutely full they need another uh hotel and he is now being uh he's getting on very well with uh, with Maggie Smith's Muriel Donnelly, who's the person who understands the business, and they go off to see if they can get investors to invest in what will be the second best exotic marigold hotel. The investors say, well, we'll come and check the premises out. By coincidence, back in the normal premises, everything else is everything... Well, hang on, I'm getting there. Yeah. Everything, all these individual stories are going on. By coincidence, along comes Richard Gere. No. And, yes, Richard Gere. And when Richard Gere turns up, Dev thinks he's the hotel inspector. Lordy, Lord, have mercy on my Everest. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the great Guy Chambers. As welcome as he is fragrant. Hi. Hello. Hello. Good to meet you all. Perhaps tomorrow you will allow me to take you on a tour of our magnificent pink city. But now I shall bring you food guaranteed to tickle even your most talented taste buds. Wow, that was thorough. Find any polyps up there? He's the one. What one? Our evaluator. Sent to decide if we are to be franchise or footnote. What's your evidence? The nose knows, Mrs. Donnelly. Oh, right. So that's then. So, is that cussing? Well, you know, a a little. Just just a a little bit of cussing. Um, So, essentially, the setup is... So Dev Patel thinks that Richard Gere is the hotel inspector. Richard Gere insists that he's an author. He's I, got, I think I've seen a kind of a mistake yeah, in hotel inspector ex- somewhere before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not the first person to make that joke. Funnily enough, it's made in almost every single newspaper review. And then whilst that clip was playing out, Robin 
said on my phones, do you think there's a rat in a biscuit tin? Uh, meanwhile... I don't read any other reviews. I don't listen to any other critics, no, so I wouldn't good. have known That's that. right, because we have a monogamous relationship. Um, uh, Celia Imrie is uh, torn between two lovers. Uh, Bill, there's a song. There's a song. There's Put a song. on the list. Feeling like a fool. Loving both of you is breaking Break all the rules. Um, I'm just going to wallow in that. For that a also has that great phrase. I wouldn't really no. Uh, don't you, you mustn't you mustn't think you failed me just because there's someone else. What? What am I supposed it's to? What it's then? your it's my fault. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, so Celia Emery, tall between two lovers. Meanwhile, Bill Nye and Judy Dench still circling themselves. In a, each other in a dance of uh, unrequited uh, love, you know, because they've they sort of they sort of but they haven't quite sort of admitted each other. And then in the middle of it, it's the whole thing about Richard Gere is there, and he's sort of falling for. Dev, so what you can tell so from, falling for uh, for Dev Patel's mum. Okay, yes, and that's and so so you don't really know what his motives are, but is he a hotel inspector? You don't know. So as you can tell from that synopsis, it is somewhat episodic. I mean, it does feel like what they've done is they've created a, a cast of people that we like and whose company we like, and they need to give all of them something to do that sort of expands upon or, you know, extrapolates from what happened in the first film. But they end up with too many plot threads and too many character things and too many characters. And it doesn't, it, you know, like kind of uh, a fraying carpet, it doesn't quite mesh together. And it certainly doesn't have the the clarity of the original narrative, which was this sort of simple idea that a bunch of, of expats end up somewhere they don't want to be because actually it makes more sense for them financially and you know what they all have to pull together and they discover during the course of it that this is well for most of them discover this is what they wanted in the case of this it's like okay and then what happens next and if that is the, the classic sequel issue what happens next well what happens next is some of it you buy and some of it you don't but the whole thing does feel like an afterthought however it manages to get away with it and largely on the strength of the sort of well-deserved reservoir of affection that we have for these characters. And it's funny because even as you're watching the film and thinking, yeah, that's a script meeting away and that's, a, you know, that's a, we've got to put that bit in and we go, you can, you can hear the mechanics of the plot working and you don't ever really buy it. And, uh, but you sort of let it get away with it because you like the characters and you like the players and you, you're sort of, you've got enough goodwill towards it. And, you know, bearing in mind where the first one, you know, scored with its, with its audience, this will, the matinee performances of this will be absolutely packed. And uh, we watch by people drinking cups of tea and enjoying it in a largely uncritical way. It's nothing like as good as the first one, but it's, it's kind of charming because you like the characters. There is also a moment in it, and I was just so delighted. There's a moment in it in which Richard Gere is having um, this sort of deep and meaningful conversation uh, with Sonny's mum, and uh, and he literally does the thing about she says something, and he goes, this is for the viewers, and, and he closes his eyes, drops his head, and very theatrically he goes, I just felt like standing up and cheering. It's a signature move. It does never let him down, doesn't matter where does he, he is. It? Does he do it in other movies? He does it in everything. There is not... I thought it was just he dropped his trousers in everything. No, he hasn't done for a while. Probably just as... And when he did it in Chicago, it was kind of ironically. No, you watch this, you know, Richard Gere, Mr Blinky, acts with his eyes. But his signature move, when there's something important happened, and he's, the camera just looks at him, and he does the same one. Close the eyes, drop the head. I was, I was in heaven. Mr. Blinky. That's that, going on the poster in Is that how he's referred to? Mr. Mr. Blinky. Blinky. Yes. I did enjoy telling him that you'd ruined my life. And then he yeah. did a little bit of he did a little bit of Blinky. 
I know. Uh, then, as you would, as he's trying to think, what on earth is this guy talking about? Gareth Owen in Upper Mill in Lancashire. Yes. As a fan of the original Best Exotic, I had high hopes for the sequel, which my wife and I saw last night. Sad then that such a vast array of acting talent couldn't overcome the vaster deficiencies in the story and screenplay. Yeah, I mean, the story, it, the story is, <clears throat> is just bits. The original rounded characters that we liked first time round are now each reduced to one single personality trait, the forgetful one. The non-committal one, the promiscuous one, like a troop of slightly geriatric Spice Girls, doomed to plod through their utterly predictable denouement. That's a great phrase. Worse, Sonny, who we're repeatedly told is charming, spends the whole film being such an obnoxious jerk to all and sundry that you long for his business to collapse. Okay, can I? Can I? And his fiance to run off with the handsome friend. Can I leap in quickly and just say? Uh, although Sonny may indeed, because the because the whole script contrivance is Sonny has to believe that he has to impress Richard Gere, and consequently he misbehaves he behaves very badly, and that character would be nothing other than grating were he played by anybody less charming than Dev Patel. But actually, what Dev Patel does, and bear in mind that because Dev Patel is moving towards his own his character Sonny is moving towards his own marriage, which is obviously an attempt to sort of broaden the audience and you know get the younger viewers in as well. I think. Dev Patel, plaudits are due to him because I think that you managed to to stay with Sonny even as he is being utterly unreasonable and I think that's down to Dev Patel who I really do think is a talented and engaging uh, actor. And is in Chappie uh, as... Uh, yes, as, and is he good in Chappie? It's uh, one of the main actors. He's a, yes, he's fine. <laughs> it's pretty much the de- dictionary definition of damning with fate. Yeah, he's fine. I, I well, that's, but that's how I feel about Second Best Exotic. It's fine. It is what it is. goes down well with a couple of team misses. I, I didn't review them. Can I just say I didn't review Chappie there because I... No, I know you didn't. Thing. No, I know. Like, I just said... No, he, I know. You know, he was OK. No, and I just extrapolated. Um, who's this? this is you were still... Yeah. Ian Tunnicliffe. Uh, four years ago, you read out my thoughts on the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Was it, wow. I said then that the plot was incoherent, the setup implausible, and the portrayal of India highly inaccurate. But, but that was before I saw the second best. But despite that, the film was well worth seeing for the quality of performance from a top-notch cast. Last night, I saw a preview of the second best uh, that confirmed all my forebodings about the cash-in sequel. It has the same faults as the original, and if anything, the plot this time round is even more rickety and cringeworthy. The difference it is, now... It is, it is, much more rickety, yeah. ...is that the cast is clearly going through the motions with that when-do-I-get-the-check look in their eyes. The addition of Richard Gere and Tamsin Gregg adds something to the mix, but not enough to save any kind of artistic integrity. Even in coasting mode, actors of this class can't help delivering a few enjoyable moments, so the evening was not a total write-off. Mm, yeah. However, my overriding feeling was that I really wish all that talent had been put into creating something new and interesting instead of this cynical and mechanical retread. Uh, so, two interesting points about that very well-argued um, uh, email. The first one is, I don't agree that the cast look like they're waiting for the check. I think the cast are actually enjoying themselves, and as we know... The rule of this stuff is the more the cast enjoy themselves, the less the audience does. I think the cast actually are enjoying being reunited. Everything you say about the um, the, the, the the plot being uh, rickety and all over the place is completely right, and it, it absolutely is. And the the idea, the phrase "cash in" is tough, but it's true. The, clearly, the reason this exists is because of the huge financial success of the first one. There is no narrative reason for it to exist. It therefore says a lot about just how charming the cast are that I still feel okay about it. I di- and I didn't sit there just feeling cynical about it, although I could see the mechanics 
grinding their way towards you know we got to, let's get in an american and let's get in tams and greg and let's you know let's let's do that episode of faulty towers all that stuff but but still you know as i said they they, they can't help but be funny i wonder if it, it it's almost critic proof in it's one of those movies no, it is critic proof. it doesn't make any difference what the critics find its audience and they will go and see it yeah and and, and bear in mind as with the original it was one of the significant films to sell itself on the strength of uh you know, real people's responses. The Sheena from Pudsey thing is not something I made up. The Sheena from Pudsey thing is true. Best movie I've seen all year, Sheena from Pudsey. Uh, Miss Catchpole emails, the second best exotic is the cinematic equivalent of Ron Seal uh, delivering a fail-save script on geriatric reflection. John Madden and Old Parker seamlessly follow on from where Deborah Muggett's novel ended, navigating the British retirees' now chosen career paths and chaotic love lives. The well-seasoned cast ensure the impishly colourful spirit of the first film continues, whilst commuting to an ageing demographic repeatedly overlooked in the youth-obsessed world of film. As a paragraph, Chloe, I have to say it's pretty darn good. There you go. Yeah, she can write. <clears throat> uh, print it now. Uh, so it's, uh, yes, it's... What do you suddenly say, print it now? Well, it's like, it, 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 it deserves to be on Oh, there. I see, sorry, print it, sorry. Yes, fine. I, 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 put it on the poster. Put yeah, no, I understand, I understand. I just didn't quite understand what you were saying. At the... When I look, it's 3.22, and I'm wondering if there's anything else. Focus. Pardon? Focus. Is this your general advice for me for the rest of the program? Yes, focus. Or are and, we and... talking Dutch prog rock? Can you name two members of Focus now? Dirt Herdenfnerden mm-hmm. and Fnick Schriebling. Racist. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay. What, what were they? Well, I can only I can only remember two: Tis Van Leer, him. Yeah. That's what Tis I meant. Tis Van Leer yeah. and Jan Ackerman. Jan Ackerman. There were other members of who now run something else. Apparently, is that right? Mm. Whoever they are. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They do this. So, uh, so is it anything to is it anything to do with focus? Because they because I think we could obviously focus but, focus plus Sylvia mm. and House of the King is very very good. Okay. Uh, stars Will Smith and Margot Robbie. What are the chances that it's going very, to be about focus? Very little. Okay. So, uh, Focus, starring uh, Will Smith uh, and uh, Margot Robbie, uh, and directed. Uh, it's got yodeling in it, Hocus Pocus, as well. Which yeah, yodel, awesome. little, 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 little. That, that you, don't it, to, you don't have, have to, to yodel, yodel just because just I said I the same. Yeah. That is Hocus Pocus by Focus, isn't it? The yodeling one, isn't it? That is Hocus Pocus. I've just said yes. It's got yodeling in it, Hocus Pocus. That's what I said. My focus. Okay, can I do the film now? Oh, yeah, yeah, or are sorry, you just yeah, going to yeah. just snip for the rest of the... No, no, you carry on. It's very good. Okay, fine. So, um, uh, it is written and directed by the co-directors of Crazy Stupid Love, which was infinitely forgettable. And it desperately wants to be The Sting meets Ocean's Eleven. You know, that sort of, it's a sort of high concept, or surface, flashy. And so the story is, at the very beginning of it, uh, we meet uh, Will Smith. He's in a bar. He's kind of, you know, slightly mysterious. Margot Robbie is in the bar. She uh, also uh, is not quite what we think. Uh, the two of them, they sort of meet up. And suddenly it turns out she's a bit of a sort of low-level con person. He's a bit of a high-level con person. She's impressed by him. He agrees to teach her the ropes. He does teach her the ropes, and they do a little... They do some sort of some, some wallet lifting and some credit card stuff together, and then he gives her the slip. And then the action moves to three years later. However, here's a clip from early on when he is explaining to her the rules and regulations of pulling a con. At the end of the day, this is a game of focus. Attention is like a spotlight. And our job is to dance in the darkness. I didn't feel you take that. The human brain is slow and it cannot multitask. Human behavior is very predictable. I touch you here, I steal from here. I tap you here, I steal from here. I step to here, 
You're not gonna slap my face, are you? Why? You would if you knew where my hand was. Okay, I get it, I get it. You get their focus. You take whatever you want. Didn't the whole thing sound like it's about in the summertime? Mm-hmm. It's like when he's doing that thing. He's about that. to burst into you song. You shimmy. Is that what he says? No, I think you shimmy what, that kind of music. You know, you walk yeah. with a kind of a high. Except that actually what it's trying to do is it's it's trying to be a sort of slightly mellowed out version of the David Holmes stuff from, uh, you know, from, 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 from the Oceans movies. And it's trying to have... In fact, very, very early on, there's a conversation in which uh, he talks about uh, the, the, the ultimate con move, is which when you're doing a con with two people and one of them shoots the other one in order to demonstrate that, he's, that, they're, that they're not a partner. Now, of course, if you've s- seen The Sting and you know this thing which caused one best picture in 1974 came out in 1973 um which was this sort of very elaborate uh, story about the big con uh in which paul newman and, and robert redford are they working together aren't they you know so this whole thing is set up at the very very beginning and you go okay fine i'll just wait for that to uh you know throw that ball in the air and wait for it to land towards the end and the rest of the film plays out in this what thinks that it's very slick very clever very kind of finger popping everything is a double cross everything that somebody has whilst he was doing that conversation with margot robbie as he was explaining the stuff he would steal her watch he was stealing her bag he was taking a credit card she, oh i didn't even notice that you had done that you know it's amazing and you know now i'm and so and the whole film is at that level and the problem with it is that rather than being uh the Sting meets Ocean's Eleven. It's like, do you remember that British movie Plastic, but with Americans in no, it? No, what happened in Plastic? Well, basically, a bunch of people get together to sort of do some scams and do some stuff, and then they go off to the front base. A little bit ooh, a little bit ah. A little bit ooh, a little bit ah, a little bit wee, a little bit woo. It's like that, but with Americans. And uh, it's sort of established early on that every conversation is, in fact, an elaborately set up thing, and everything that happens... and but but it doesn't have the wit or intelligence to make in the way that something like the sting does that when the twists happen you go oh when the twists happen in this you go eh? uh, nah and so that so that's it it's the it's the difference between those two noises if you've got you know you know has to go you know some in order for, for for one of those scam movies to work, you have to be convinced that when the twists work, when the things happen... Do you remember the moment in the Oceans movie in which they pull the absolutely unforgivable trick that Julia Roberts pretends to be Julia Roberts? Do you remember that? Right, yes. And you go, no. It's the Darren Brown moment when you go, no, no, sorry, the magic trick just failed. I, you can't do that. And in the case of this, you just go, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't believe any of these conversations. I don't believe any of these relationships. I'm not invested in the characters. They're all kind of a little bit annoying. Oh, we're in Buenos Aires. Look, there are some fast cars. Look, there's a hotel. Look, there's some champagne. Oh, there's a double double cross. And then we get into the third act, which it all completely for. It is to call it flimsy and all on the surface is to do is is. To, to only scrape the surface of how flimsy and all on the surface it is. I mean, there's a whole section that takes place with these Formula One race cars, and you, you end up being distracted by the cars. It is flimsy, frothy, disposable, throwaway, at best, at very best, when Adrian Martinez is on screen stealing every single scene as he does as the, the sidekick, it's kind of passingly chucklesome. And at worst, it's kind of annoying. Uh, on the subject of uh, the Marigold Hotel, second best, Jenny yeah. Birmingham, went to see it yesterday, thoroughly enjoyed it, surely that's what counts, and I suspect you yeah, will yeah. be speaking for uh, many, many <coughs> millions of folk. Hmm. You're nice. right. Yeah, now, you remember uh, Andy, age 52? Yes. Had the 17-year-old son. I do I'm remember, not, it was about 10 minutes ago. I'm not going to see... 
And and uh, I'm not going to see Shaun the Sheep. It's a CBBC film. This is uh, this is the debate that was happening in Andy's mm-hmm. house. Simon, I'm 18. I went to see Shaun the Sheep with my dad's, with my dad's, and two younger sisters. It was fantastic. We had a right laugh. There we go. <clears throat> so and then Andy gets back in touch here. Chaps, thanks for the advice about Shaun the Sheep. You're right. If I want to go, it's my birthday, then my son should go anyway, especially if he wants a lift to the school social tonight. This is the there, way... There we got it. This is the way families work. Yeah. It's my birthday, come to the movie, otherwise I'm not going to take you anywhere. Mm. But that's not really a blackmail threat. Do, no, do, no, no, not really, do, because... Do what I, you know, do what I want. If, I mean, threatening someone with taking them to see... Sean the Sheep is not a hardship. No, it's a lovely yeah. thing, yeah. and I'm sure Andy's son is a lovely... 17-year-old is going to go, you know And what? he's going to enjoy it and all this So look forward me. to the email next week when he's been, he's seen it, he's loved it, he's realised that we're brilliant. Yeah, Andy, we need a text from a He's realised that we are more informative and educational than any... Oh, no, that wasn't me, that was Gillian Reynolds. Sorry, sorry. Just BBC before. Radio 5 Live here. Uh, what's happening in the next half hour here on 5 Live? Uh, we shall review... Uh, <laughs> what? We sorry, shall review It Follows and uh, we shall review Catch Me Daddy and we shall review White God and some other stuff. It Follows... Um, yes. is the most... Uh, talked about. As far as the emails are concerned for our audience, is the most talked about movie yes. of the week. Uh, and it's a, a little bit of a horror movie? Yes. A little bit of a horror movie. It's a horror movie. Just got my creaky chair. Yeah, I know. Oh, I see. Moment. That's what you're doing. Fine, yeah. It's not that kind of horror movie. Oh, it's not? No, it's not. not, creaky not, not it's not a creaky chair horror okay. movie. Stu in Rotherham says, I was unfortunate enough to attend an early preview of Focus. Oh, dear. I'm still not sure what kind of a film it wanted to be, but it came across as a below-par episode of the TV show Hustle. Hustle, yeah. I kept yeah, expecting Robert Vaughan to pop up smoking a big cigar. <laughs> By the way, quite excited about the Man From U.N.C.L.E. movie. Yeah. Speaking of Robert Vaughan. Are you? Okay. I had one of those Man From U.N.C.L.E. badges at school. Oh, it was super cool then when I was five. Were you Ilya... Ilya Kuryakin. That was you. I was El Blondie. El Blondie. Yeah, that's what you have to be. As for the twists in the plot, well, they were signposted so early, I spotted them on my way back from holiday in January. Please, Mr Smith, Mr. Smith go back to saving the earth in your films. Uh, you can't save this pile of bobbins. Mm. Uh, now, Snapchat, the, uh, our output has been particularly good today. Very, very strong. Uh, don't forget, if you, it, it's wittertainment. That's what you go to Snapchat, you just download Snapchat. How are we doing, by the way? The, the man in charge of Snapchat is also called Simon. How is it going? It's going really well. We've, we've massively increased engagement. Thanks very much. Oh, have we hit 30? We are nearing 30. That's amazing. Because no one else gets 30. 30 what? Well, 30. Just 30. Just 30. 30. 30. Just 30. Okay. Uh, right. Do you want to jump into some detail? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I can go into a lot no, of detail. I think, I, I think the last time I came on, I didn't quite go into enough I detail. I think you're okay, fade him out because he is definitely getting <laughs> ideas above his station. You're just a, you're a backroom boy. Remember that. Thank you, sir. Oh, when you turn, <laughs> Zeph in London, and, uh, and and with that, Simon, you're dismissed. Yeah. I it. have been looking. How, now you see what it's like for me. Every week it's like this. Zeph in London, I've been looking forward to the release of It Follows for some time, and tonight just could be the night that I go to watch it. My girlfriend Kelly is terrified of horror films, and not in a good way, and refuses to watch them on the grounds that they stay with her for a few weeks. The title It Follows probably doesn't bode well then. Is it a bone-chilling, spine-tingling film, or is it more like Cabin in the Woods and sort of fun and clever? Basically, even if you have to lie, can you say it's not that scary? Then I can go to the cinema tonight, as I've been trapped in the house for the past week and standing on a nail. No, after standing on a nail. After standing on a nail. <laughs> Otherwise, that's have really... And standing on a nail for a week. Seems really... That's bad. Yes. Anyway, Zephyr London, I hope you get, a, uh, get better soon. 
And here we go with It Follows. So directed by David Robert Mitchell, who previously made The Myth of the American Sleepover, which kind of tells you something tonally about the film. What does it, it tell me tonally? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just about to get there, OK? Thank so you. it is basically a story um, that owes a great debt to Halloween uh, in particular and to the sort of the horrors of the late 70s, early 80s. The film seems to have an 80s setting. Actually, it's a modern-day setting, but it, it appears to exist in some kind of weirdly retrofitted present in which the everything about the, the score which kind of harks back to that squishy synth sound of uh, of john carpenter and also i suppose you would think something like uh, jeff grace's work and cold in july and uh, it's a story of teens it is a film in which uh, parents tend to be largely absent and when they're present they are uh, they're present as a uh, vacuous vessels. Uh, the story centres on uh, 19-year-old heroine Jay, played by Michael Monroe, who we saw uh, recently in The Guest. Um, and at the very beginning of the film, she's started seeing this uh, guy and uh, nature is taking its course in the way of teen movies. She has a, a circle of friends with her about whom she's talking to, about the way the relationship is progressing. Finally, her and, uh, and, and Hugh... Uh, have an assignation in the back of a car. They're getting older. Yes, they get. Yeah. They, they get. They spend some time getting older together in the back of a car, which immediately starts bringing up uh, images of Tale of the Hook. The way in which the it, it's shot, you know, the car. You see, immediately start thinking of Tale of the Hook, which is the great sort of psychosexual underpinning of a bunch of slasher movies. The story is, you know, if you make out, then death comes. So the tale of the hook is two kids in a car and there's a sort of hook-handed maniac on the loose. And it's sort of the sump of all those movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween and, and then Post Scream. And uh, after this has happened, immediately the boyfriend is revealed to be a, a, a scheming louse who uh, drugs her and then ties her to a chair and then explains to her that he has now passed on to her a curse. This thing... It's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you back in the car. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. It can look like anyone, but there's only one of it. Now, the interesting thing is, I know that um, uh, It Follows has really freaked some people out. Some people found it really scary. I didn't find it particularly scary, partly, I think, because uh, I was more interested in the way in which it was taking genre conventions and and playing with them. Um, the central story is then that this this is a curse which is passed on through sex, but actually it can only be passed on to the next person through more sex, and that then has to carry on and carry on, carry on, or the chain of the curse can come back. So basically, it's one of those, it's playing with the standard ideas that inflect all those post-1978, early 1980s slasher movies, which is the sex-death equation, which is you know as old as the hills, but it's doing something sort of slightly subversive and, uh, and interesting about it. It also, it has to be said, it wants to have its psychosexual case, uh, cake and eat it. I mean, it indulges as many genre cliches as it examines, as it unpacks. I mean, so there is a huge amount of people running around places in their underwear um you know and and more um so it's not that the film can and less and less it's not the film completely disavows those things it sort of plays with them even whilst he's unpacking them but what's what gives it an edge is that uh having done myth of the american sleeper which is this sort of bittersweet you know coming of age tale 
What uh, the director is really interested in is the relationship between the central teenagers. Um, the lead character, Jay, has something of that glacial alienation of a kid's era, Chloe Savini. And incidentally, I think Larry Clark would delight in the portrayal of a world in which parents are an absence and they're certainly not a protective presence. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, it is interested in the interplay of the relationships between those people and the way in which they, they're actually, the friends are generally more supportive than they tend to be in this kind of movie although they all, all they do have their own motives and the film is interested in their motives and is interesting in interested in their characters the second thing is that it has uh, a fairly straightforward setup which is that you will be pursued by this wraith this wraith can appear as absolutely anything um but the the one defining fact is that it will it will pursue you at walking speed and it's a film which you know you will see parodies of this very very soon that, that all the way through the film Whoever it is that is uh, that is currently hosting the curse is looking around them to see if there's anybody walking towards them. And if there, there is, the first thing is, can you see that? Because if anybody else can't see it, it's the race. So there's a, there's a actually very well developed threat of just people walking in the far left corner of the frame. As soon as you see people walking at a perfectly normal speed, it starts to become creepy. Now, that there sounds are, good. That yeah, sounds exactly. Good. There are crash, bang, wallop set pieces, and when they come, they do deliver you know, scares and shocks, and certainly in the screening that I was in, that those were working. But the reason they work is because of the heft and the weight that is built up through the interim sequences in, nothing, in which nothing very much appears to be happening. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's almost like, you know, a way of describing it might be if you sort of think of that, you know, post Larry Clark, Harmony Corinne, I'm not a fan of Harmony Corinne at all. So actually, let's, let's get rid of that. If you think of that sort of post Larry Clark portrait of teen life, that alienated Gen X teen life thing, and then you combine that with the plot structure, and there are scenes in it that absolutely capture Halloween. I mean, there are scenes walking around the streets of Detroit. Incidentally, Detroit and Michigan, the, the, the locations are used very well, the change between the suburban and the sort of the moderately well-to-do, and then these other areas which are kind of deserted and haunted housey. Um, and it, it uses those locations very well. But there is an awful lot of the camera sort of prowling around on the streets, looking over the shoulders of its protagonists. There were sequences from I mean, when I did a documentary about Halloween years and years ago. We went to North uh, Orange Grove Avenue, but you can still walk down. It's in Hollywood. It's not meant to be, but you can, you can walk down it. and You feel like you are walking along the streets of Haddonfield. You feel like you're walking. You feel like Michael Myers is going to be walking behind you. And actually, what's interesting about this is it does feel like it's stalking the ghost of Michael Myers. I don't think that it's quite perhaps the revolutionary horror film that that I think some people think it is um, I think it's very well executed I think it's it, as I said, it indulges as many dodgy cliches as it unpacks, but it's if it's put together in a way which, because you because it's primarily interested in the characters and their interactions, or sometimes their alienation from each other, all that stuff proves that, as always is the case with horror, you things work and things are scary because you're made to care about the people and you're made to care about the characters. There's also an extended set piece in the third act in which we move to a swimming pool surrounding, which seemed to me to be referring to something like "Let the Right." one in which again is you know set in 1982 but seems to have this very timeless setting the whole film deliberately has this slightly time shifted slightly woozy slightly out of kill to feel so it's uh it's it's ambitious and interesting it's not without flaws and it's certainly um it's certainly not as radical as perhaps uh, some people think it is 
but it's very well constructed and it didn't scare me but i know that it scared other people and that's and that's fine but i was interested in it and not, I, because i thought that what it was doing was being literate and actually wanting to make a movie about team relations in which the function of the curse the kind of candy candy man ringu section of the narrative the thing that's driving it you know the, the train that's driving the narrative he's sort of less interested in that than he is in the relationship between the characters so on behalf of zef in london who's been standing on a nail for a week <laughs> is so is it a bone chilling spine tingling film or more like cabin in the woods and sort of fun and clever it's not like either of those two things it's like it's like a it's like a glacial larry clark take on halloween mark harrison but i don't that's kind of unfair because i don't like larry clark that much but that's yeah, just that a, that's really a way of clarified going. anything. But thanks very much. Just got back from a, a screening of It Follows, and it certainly does. This is a real horror film that creeps and lingers with the viewer rather than using cheap tricks to make them jump. Uh, Maker Monroe improves from her supporting role to Dan Stevens in The Guest. <clears throat> to Dan Stevens I, thought she, in the I, guest. I thought she was very good in The Guest, incidentally. By proving she can clearly hold her own as a lead. Looking forward to seeing what she has in store next. As for It Follows, I'm now more scared of how this brilliant concept of a film will be broken down and used over again yeah. by another film, but I assume with a lot less impact than this original piece of filmmaking does. Finally, it was great to, to learn about Disaster Piece, who provide a truly unsettling soundtrack to go with such an, uh, an edge... Of the seat film. So Richard Vreeland, who's the you know the composer, the musician there, and uh, as I is said, he, is he disaster piece? Uh, yes, I, he's we, yes. We got some disaster piece here. Edge of the seat film. But you can hear Halloween in that, can't you? Mm-hmm. John Carpenter always did his own. Yeah, he did that. Yeah. And as he said, okay, one of the things we did when we did the Halloween doc was we got him to. I mean that. That 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 the bass progression. That, yeah, that the 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 you know the left hand move there is absolutely. Halloween is absolutely John John Cobb's Halloween. Sorry, I was, was I thought you were going to finish the sentence there. David Kearney, possibly Kearney. I went to a showing of It Follows at the Glasgow Film Festival last week, and while I'm not normally a fan of horror movies, this one had a, had me a little excited. From what I'd heard, this was going to be the best horror film in a long time and a modern classic. Well, it was not to be. From setting up rules which it doesn't stick with, with which it does not stick. It will always be walking straight towards you, apart from when it's just standing on your roof. On your yeah. <laughs> To the nonsense decisions the characters make. Only, I hope this isn't a spoiler. Anyway, only I can see it. I guess the best option is to run off alone at every opportunity. And the let's sleep on top of the car rather than inside with the doors locked. The film provoked me into a rant as soon as I left the screen. Okay. Much to the annoyance of my horror-loving companion. That said, Maker Monroe does a good job in the lead role. Uh, but they couldn't make up for film for the film's many, many. Story Can I say faults. one thing that is interesting? And I, you want to read another email? I am. Okay, fine. You can do that, and then I'll. Then you tell us something interesting. interesting. Yeah. Gregory Munich. Be a first, wouldn't it? I had the privilege of seeing it follows at the Munich Film Festival last summer, and since then, not a week has gone by in which I have not thought about it. This is quite probably my favourite horror film I have ever seen Evs. in my life, and even though I'm not a horror, and I'm not a horror expert i don't say this lightly everything from the believable and compelling characters to the cinematography and the gorgeous sound design and soundtrack does the best job possible in making this a thought-provoking and truly scary experience i'll be shocked if a better film gets released this year uh, and i hope you like it as well uh jordan in bracknell age 22 and a third a uh, long-time listener, I've emailed a few times, never had one read out. If this email succeeds, I can only wish it was under a happier set of circumstances. I had the misfortune of seeing It Follows at a secret screening at my local multiplex. Previous secrets had been Nightcrawler, Whiplash and Selma, so my hopes were high. I find the positive reviews of this film baffling. 
I found it, I found it mind-numbingly stupid, <laughs> boring, and an insult to my intelligence. It kept attempting to build towards a meaningful ending, fell well short. Normally, I would have complained that the cinema house lights came on 30 seconds before the end of the movie, but it indicated to me that it was almost over. The dialogue at times was so laughable, it became difficult to control. Uh, if I had known the central plot before, I would have avoided this film like the plague. It now holds... Get this. Go on. It now holds the title of the worst film I have ever seen, and I've seen Taken 2 and Taken 3. OK. Well, what I was going to say was interesting... Well, I think we'll be the judge of that. ..is how much the film has divided people. Uh, certainly, I, I had a couple of uh, tweets from people before I went to see it, and uh, a couple of several saying either a thousand. Uh, I, uh, we had a thousand tweets that's right i added them up either saying you know i this is the most brilliant thing ever or if you like this film then then our friendship is finished i mean as it is i don't think it's brilliant i think it's good and it has interesting things in it and there are flaws and you know i mean in, in terms of the originality of the story if you look back at sort of you know post scream pastiches like cherry falls th th there is very little that's new in the in the, in the realms of of telling these stories and inverting them and changing them around and turning them on their heads. But I think what it does do is it creates an atmosphere. It has, and that's the, the crucial thing with horror, is it has to create that atmosphere of eeriness, of the uncanny, the sense of foreboding, the sense of dread. And certainly with that central motif of making somebody walking towards you from a distance quite slowly scary, it does that really well. And it's, I, I'm surprised by the thing about it insulted your intelligence because... I, I could understand somebody thinking that the problem with it is that it's not scary enough, although I think for many people it absolutely was, but I don't, I, I don't get the it's not intelligent. I think it's very knowing. If, if, there, is a, if there is a problem, perhaps it would be that, it was, that it's too knowing, that it's, it, it's arch and that it understands what it's doing. It uh, knows. Well, and, and one more, just, and this is more in keeping um, with everybody else, from Mr. Danielle... Fiendaka and brackets, yes, Mark Danielle is a boy's name. Just so in case you were querying it. I wasn't querying it. I, what? I was lucky enough to see it follows but, but late... thanks for laying that at my... You know, like, that was my... Did I, did I quote that before? Did late I? last year at the BFI London Film Festival. OK. My expectations were already extremely high, having seen an extended clip at Fright Fest, which scared my socks off. Yeah. And was only matched by the quite brilliant Babadook. And duck, duck. Cue Mark saying that Babadook in... Very good. ...in an extremely creepy voice. And boy, was I not disappointed, as I quickly found my senses being attacked by a quite brilliant electronic score, which never really allows you to settle from start to finish. With obvious nods to Ringu and classic Carpenter, the film is still one of the most original and scariest films of the last decade, possibly being my favourite horror movie since the, last, since the first Saw film. Equally beautiful and disturbing, I would not be surprised if we are looking back on this in 20 years as one of the rare horror classics of this millennium. Well, one, one thing that is interesting, in the 1980s there were a slew of remakes of 1950s uh, horror movies like The Blob, The Thing, The Fly. Um, and, you know, now it's definitely the case that people are looking back to the late 70s and early 80s. There is this kind of 30-year cycle... And, you know, people say, well, partly it's to do with filmmakers looking back to the things that scared them when they were young. I mean, David Robert Mitchell would have been going to school when Halloween was first in cinemas and then, you know, and then on television and, you know, then on, then on video after that. So there is always this sense of horror looking back. What's interesting for me is if you look, for example, at a documentary like The American Nightmare, which goes 68 to 78, Night of the Living Dead to Halloween, 
and basically says that that's the interesting period. Night of the Living Dead, uh, Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he kind of sees Halloween as the end, the point at which we then go into the mainstreaming of Friday the 13th. There is now a whole generation of people for which Halloween is psycho, for which Halloween is Night of the Living Dead, for which Halloween is year zero of this, you know, of, uh, of this cycle of movies. Uh, would you say, this has just come in uh, from Melissa, would you say it's scarier than Babadook? Um, no, I wouldn't. Equally scary? Um, no, I wouldn't. I think Babadook is a better film, but I liked it. Can I review Catch Me Daddy quickly? Because I, we, I, we have time to Rhetorical do Rhetorical question. You, Mark, can say what you wish. So, harrowing and, and powerful uh, first feature from uh, Daniel and Matthew Wolfe. And what's interesting about this is it has a down-to-earth story. It's a cross-cultural uh, relationship which uh, inspires violent family reprisals. And on the one hand, the, the story has this kind of you know grim, miserableist, realist tone to it, although the, the, the phrase honour killings is never used in the film. It's clearly there are references towards that very early on in the film. We see there's a, there's a couple and they are hiding out in a caravan. There are two groups of people, one British Asian, one white, searching for them. At one point we see somebody cutting a, a sheet of plastic to line the back of a car and this is laced with, uh, you know, w- w- with dread. And But what's interesting about the film is that although it has that thread to it, in fact, it also has a magic about it which takes it way beyond realism much more into the realms of something like the work of Lynn Ramsey or the work of Clio Barnard it is beautifully photographed by uh, Robbie Ryan uh, shooting I think on 35mm who finds fairy tale uh, dark sort of grim fairy tale images in the country dark of the Yorkshire Moors in the unforgiving uh, glare of a, of a neon and a fluorescent light in a scene of someone dancing to Patti Smith's horses it has an absolute Absolutely terrific central performance by Samina Jabin uh, Ahmed, who is a newcomer, um, who I think this is the first film in, in which she starred, who is completely convincing as Layla, who is the centre of this search, these people searching for her and her and her boyfriend then find themselves on the run. The film has a very, very tough edge, and certainly when it moves into its final movement, it's th- that toughness becomes almost intolerable. But... All the way through that, the whole thing is universalised by this kind of expressionist uh, imagery, superb use of uh, visuals and music together to create something which, as I said, is almost fairy tale, almost magic realist. So on the one hand, it has its it has its feet firmly grounded in those traditions of you know British realism. On the other hand, it is looking some, at something that's strangely and tangibly transcendent. Terrific performances, very convincing performances, I have to say, uh, you know, all the way through, you absolutely believe in these characters. And, you know, if you see the, the, the cinematography is quite breathtaking and the way in which this kaleidoscopic kind of collage of images come together takes the story out of something specific and into something more universal, into something more mythical, into something almost fabulous. Almost fabulous. Yes, fabulous. Yeah, fabulous. No, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to have to look up most of that so I can work. Oh, I'm sorry. That sounds as though it might be the movie of the week. I think actually the movie of the week is It Follows. I mean, I think, I think Catch Me Daddy is, is really terrific. And can I have them as joint? Yeah, you can do you Fine. Can, Absolutely. Catch Me Daddy I and It we'll Follows. Make up our own rules. And then when we get to the podcast, we're going to talk about White God as well. And the po- podcast will be available very, very shortly. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Sean Penn on next week's programme. Now it's Drive. Well, we're virtually done, but so much important stuff to squeeze in in this final podcast extra. Yeah. Chris in Stabridge, first of all, uh, long-time listener, uh, but I haven't emailed 
for a while. However, I am now inspired to do so by the upcoming milestone birthdays of my two children and my desire to thank you both. You see, you two have been there for me from almost the beginning of their lives. You two have? Yes, amazing. As well. helping me stay sane amidst the challenges of being a house husband. You've kept me company during countless hours cooking and washing up in the kitchen. Um, wash up. Wash up. Very Happily good. chuckling away to myself while simultaneously being educated about the latest releases and what valuable information it has been, as movie watching has been one of the most constant pleasures since becoming parents. And now, hard as it is for me to believe, our daughters... Through our daughter, Maya, is going to turn 15 on Monday and can finally watch all the 15-rated movies she's been so desperate to watch and probably has watched when you weren't. Yes. And which we've denied her. And our son, Taron, becomes a teenager today. He wants to be a film director when he grows up and is becoming more and more interested in your podcast every week. So if you could see it in your hearts to wish Maya and Taron a happy birthday, I'd be more than grateful. Uh, and here's hoping Mark gets his wish of another 10 years and then maybe you can wish Maya a happy 25th and review one of Taron's films. Happy birthday. <clears throat> so we'll do that. Um, we have a, a very entertaining medley of Norwegian null point music. Very good. On the way. TV movie of the week, though, Innie Roberts says, I think Mark's going to go for Kill List because it's brilliant and proof that Film 4 do show good films before 1am. <laughs> Um, Michael Brunskill, yeah, Kill List, don't watch on a bleak overcast weekday while off work and hungover. Existential crisis, ahoy. Anita O'Hara, I think, is a toss-up between Kill List and District 9, though if he's in a good mood, he might go for Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. And Philip Guest, Mark should choose School for Scoundrels after Mordecai. It's the least we can do. For Terry Thomas, what have you chosen? I have chosen Kill List, and it, it, partly, I suppose, on the basis that it does prove that Film 4 play great movies before 11.15, uh, but also because we've been talking about films which are really, you know, quite creepy and really scary. Many people citing um, uh, It Follows as, you know, the scariest film they've seen in a very long time. I, I remember, I've said this before, I'll say it again, being in the screening of Kill List, and Nigel Floyd saying that there came a point when he thought, I'm going to have to get out because this is so oppressive. Um, I know it go. It all goes it, well. Watch it and see. I mean, there are th there are things in Kill List that will really make you want to. When's it on? It is on at the uh, very very uh, friendly time of eleven fifteen on Sunday the first of March. Film four. If it's bleak and overcast, though, Michael Brunskill says, you know, existential crisis ahoy. Yes, exactly. So, uh, okay, that's our TV movie of the week. Thank you very much indeed for that. So, um, Norway, we welcome Norvege. All our fabulous uh, Norwegian. Uh, church listeners uh, and participants and members of the congregation. We're going to serenade you with some of the worst music that you've ever come up with uh, very shortly, which seems a little bit unfair, really. Yeah. Did you have a movie to talk about before we got there? I just wanted to, uh, to, 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 to mention uh, White God, if I can. Um, so White God is this uh, quite extraordinary film uh, set in Budapest, and the story is that at the beginning we meet a 13-year-old girl who has a, a dog with, with, which she very much loves. She has to go and stay with her father. Her father doesn't like the dog. Her father sets the dog out onto the street, and then two parallel stories ensue in which the dog is basically mistreated by dog catchers and dog handlers and then ends up uh, with uh, people involved in dog fighting. And whilst this is happening, this kind of cross-cuts between the tribulations of the 13-year-old girl, and they sort of have strangely intertwined experiences, these fight or flight light uh, experiences involving intoxication, misunderstanding, incarceration. Their stories sort of oddly mirror each other. And then what happens is that we see the beginnings 
of uh, what looks like a dog revolution. The film begins at the, with this extraordinary poetic shot of the girl on a bicycle driving through the streets, which are abandoned, and behind her, this, this huge pack of dogs, either chasing her or being led by her it's hard to tell um the film is very powerful you can read it on a number of different ways you can uh, you can read it as a parable about uh, the underclass uh, uprising you can read it in relation to sam fuller's white dog which is a parable about uh, in allegory about race relations you can see it as a sort of richard adams uh, inflected story about man and animals and the mistreatment of animals and you can also see it as kind of beauty in the beast with teeth I have to say that I got in touch with the BBFC afterwards to say, just reassure me about the, the dog stuff in this, because there are dog fights in this that are every bit as alarming as in Alejandro Gonzalez, Iñárritu's uh, Amores Peros. And uh, the BBFC, yes, indeed, had all the assurances that they needed from the filmmakers. Extraordinary work by the dog trainers and by the dog wranglers. Um, no animals harmed during the present during the making of the movie. All animals treated very well, which is extraordinary because there are scenes in it that are unbelievably distressing, scenes in it which are very, very dramatic. The most brilliant on-screen dog performance for the central dog, which is played actually by two dogs, Body and Luke, I think they're both called. And, you know, at one point you think it's kind of turning into like some, you know, modern version of Incredible Journey, but then it it becomes, there are horror inflections at the end and it, it becomes visceral and it becomes brutal and it becomes bloody and strange and uh, yes very affecting very powerful and it's called white god not white dog which i find it really hard not to refer to because it's the sound full of white dog it is called white god uh, so for Ryder R. Melsom, Emma yes. in Oslo, Knut Andreas Strom Gunderson, yes. Juan Christian Pelica, Nina and Helen, yes. Martin Oyn, Mark and Christian Sand, Madeline uh, and Kasper Bullstromus, all members of our Norwegian branch We've edited together. And Mark's suggestion... Uh, my suggestion, so it's my fault, thank you. The Norwegian songs, all of which got no points uh, in the Eurovision Song Contest. So you're about to hear, from 1963, Anita Thalaug with her uh, song Solverve. In 1978, of course, it was Jan Tegen with Mil et Mil. Of course it was. And in 1981... Who could forget? We rocked to the sounds of Finn Kalvik doing Aldri Ilivit. And then 1997, the final song you're going to hear is Tor Endresen with... San Francisco. Anyway, here it is. Let's rock. This will be Anita. Then. Nil Poir. Nil Poir, apparently. Nil Sounds great. What's wrong with this? Oh, I want a copy of this. They were hard judges that year. Yeah. Interesting crossfade. Oh, wow. Mille to Mille. Which are the football results in Norway. Now that is awful. No, that's actually quite good. Here's Finn Calvin. This is the worst so far. Finally, given up on their native language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's San Francisco, yeah. yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. 
season back. Let's hear it for Tor Anderson. It's all in Norwegian, apart from the time. Oh, yeah, fine. So San Francisco would be San Francisco in Norwegian, wouldn't it? Yeah! Hey! Thanks very much indeed. I'm Tor Anderson. Thanks for not voting for us guys <laughs> anywhere around the whole of Europe and extra countries that are included for no reason, apart from the fact they've got big audiences. Very good. Like Russia. Why are they involved? What, Russia? Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> They'll stop selling <laughs> gas. Exactly. Feel free to insert cheap political gag here. Good. Um, well, we, we have to end, but I'm going to... We do. Sean Penn on the show next week. Wow. He's never been on the... Wow. He's ne- never been on the show before. Sean Penn next week. Yeah, I know you said that. Sean Penn. So we're going to leave you with... uh, uh, There's a re-release of um, uh, the Powell and Pressburger uh, Tales of Hoffman, which is absolutely terrific. 4K restoration done, played at the LFF, now uh, going to play at the NFT and then going to be going around selected uh, local cinemas before uh, coming to... What's this you're queuing up? I don't know about this. No, no, it's a trailer that we're going to play at the end of it, but I I have to be somewhere. We're going to leave you with... You've got to go somewhere, have you? Yes, okay. Simon. Yeah, I do. Uh, we're going to leave you with this absolutely wonderful trailer. It's a lovely end to the podcast. This is the original trailer for Tales of Hoffman. Lovely. The Tales of Hoffman, one of the most popular of all operas, is now brought brilliantly and intimately to the screen. Here at last is a film about which one can truly say... You have never seen anything like it before, for no screen or stage has ever encompassed so many outstanding talents. Here is a fusion of beauty in its every sense. Its magical music and color, its enchanting spectacle make a unique combination. Here are the three love stories of Hoffman the poet, sung by some of the world's greatest singers, portrayed by the greatest stars of international ballet. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.